Sports betting is now legal in Massachusetts. The first wagers were made this morning. Kind of being you know, the first to make a bet in part of history, right, because it's history. Um, with sports betting now in Massachusetts, it's a great feeling. It's pretty cool. There are high hopes for the state's finances and concerns about problem gambling. It's Tuesday, January 31st. This is WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Gambling on sports betting coming up. Exxon reported more than $55 billion in profits for 2022, its biggest annual profit ever. Until you have competitive alternatives, uh, there's going to continue to be a demand for oil and gas. Also, New York Republican Congressman George Santos is stepping down from his committee assignments as outcry continues over his fabricated biography. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's now 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with Palestinian leaders in the West Bank, saying it's clear to him that all sides must work to restore calm. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Blinken is ending his Middle East trip without any announced breakthroughs on ending Israeli-Palestinian tensions and violence. Blinken reiterated Washington's, quote, ironclad commitment to Israel's security, but added that on this trip he also heard deep concern about the current trajectory in Israel and the West Bank. In what may be seen as a caution to Israel, Blinken said the U.S. will oppose anything that runs counter to moving toward freedom and improved lives for Palestinians, including, he said, Jewish settlements, evictions, and home demolitions. But Blinken, who planned his Mideast trip in a very different climate, urged both sides not to take steps that make things worse. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. The public health emergency declared nearly three years ago over COVID-19 is expected to end May 11th. NPR's Tamara Keith reports on what the White House's announcement today could mean for people across the U.S. House Republicans have been pushing for the COVID emergency declarations to end immediately. But the White House says that would cause chaos because there are a lot of policies Americans and the health care system have come to depend on that are tied to those emergencies. Administration officials argue they need time to build the off-ramp for things like flexible telehealth, free COVID tests, and relaxed rules about patient treatment when hospitals hospitals are overloaded. If the public health emergency is allowed to expire as planned in May, the White House expects things like at-home COVID tests will no longer be covered by insurance, much like home pregnancy tests and other over-the-counter medical devices. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Gun violence in America is also widely viewed as a public health crisis. The nonprofit Gun Violence Archive is reporting more than 50 mass shootings involving four or more individuals this month alone. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says the government needs to invest more in examining and addressing the crisis. The research in this space has been really starved uh, because Congress did not put forward any funds for gun violence research until literally just a few years ago. I was grateful to see that step forward in 2018 that finally allocates some federal funds to gun violence research, but we need a lot more of it. The depth of the problem is profound. In 2020, more Americans died of gun-related injuries than in any other year on record. Murthy on NPR's Here and Now. Add PayPal holdings to the list of major companies slashing jobs. Details from NPR's David Gura. In a memo to PayPal employees, CEO Dan Schulman says the company is cutting about 7% of its staff worldwide because of a challenging macroeconomic environment and more competition. January has been a tough month for the tech industry. Some of the sector's largest companies, including Alphabet and Microsoft, have laid off tens of thousands of workers. 
NPR's David Gurr reporting. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Betting on sports is now legal in Massachusetts, as long as it's done at one of the state's three casinos. The first bets were placed at 10 o'clock this morning. Massachusetts Speaker of the House Ron Mariano was at Encore Boston Harbor in Everett for the kickoff. He says in-person sports betting will bolster the region's economy. It's going to be a beacon for, for Boston as a travel destination. Red Sox legend Johnny Damon was also at Encore Boston this morning. I worry about the casinos because Boston fans are very educated on everything. So uh, hopefully a lot of people can make some money and hopefully uh, people uh, bet the right way. The bets must be made in cash only. State regulators are expected to approve online wagering on sports by March. Massachusetts House may vote tomorrow on a contested state representatives race. Democrat Kristen Kastner beat Republican Representative Lenny Mira by a single vote following a recount last November on the North Shore. Because Mira challenged the election, the final say falls to a vote by the full House. Today, a three-member House panel looking into the race voted two to one on party lines to recommend Kastner be seated. The lone Republican on the panel argued the committee should further examine ballots that were cast. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and a group of congressional Democrats are pushing to affirm the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. It's a measure that would guarantee gender equality under U.S. law. 38 states have ratified the amendment as required by the Constitution, but the ratification failed to happen in time, the time frame set by Congress when it passed the measure in 1972. So Presley and others today are filing a bill to remove that deadline and enact the amendment. So our fight for equality, it is unfinished, but I'm proud to take up the mantle and declare there is no time limit on equality and the Equal Rights Amendment must be added to the United States Constitution. Presley says women face sexism daily. Pregnancy discrimination and pay inequities that the U.S. Constitution does not protect them from. And federal regulators are ordering lobstermen to remove their pots and traps from a large part of federal waters off the coast of Massachusetts by tomorrow. The rule is in effect until May 1st. It's meant to protect endangered white whales in the area that are vulnerable to entanglement in fishing gear and vessel strikes. The area in question extends from the waters off the tip of Cape Ann south to an area off the coast of Marshfield. 34 degrees now in the Boston area. Pretty nice end to the day today. Mostly cloudy overnight tonight, down in the upper teens. Tomorrow, sunny and colder with high temperatures in the low 30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.07. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. There's been a lot of chatter lately about gas stoves, namely that when you turn on your gas stove, it emits pollution that can affect the health of people in your home. Yeah, okay, I got it. But manufacturers know how to make burners cleaner and much more efficient. In fact, they've known how for a long time. Problem is, stoves with those burners have never been offered for sale. But that may be about to change. Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk joins us now. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Elsa. 
Okay, so let me get this straight. Manufacturers have known how to do this for a long time. What? So for how long? And and why did they originally invest in developing cleaner burners? It, it started about 40 years ago. Federal wow. regulators were considering a ban on kerosene space heaters because they put out a lot of air pollution into a room. And gas cooking stove makers and gas utilities saw that and worried the government might come for them next. So they developed this thing called an infrared burner. Ooh. It uses 40% less gas, emits 40% less nitrogen dioxide, and NO2 is the pollutant that public health experts worry about most when it comes to cooking with gas. Uh, research shows that there's a connection between having a gas stove and childhood asthma, as well as other health problems. And if you reduce the pollutants from the burners, that likely would also reduce the risk of illness. Okay, so tell me more. How are these efficient or more efficient burners different exactly? Well, instead of that familiar blue flame, these infrared gas burners look more like a traditional electric burner. They glow red, and you can hardly even see that there's a flame there. Wow. I showed this design to Brady Seals at the environmental group RMI, and she said the fact that manufacturers and utilities developed a partial solution for the pollution issue and didn't sell the burners just underscores the need for regulation. You know, the time is long overdue for mandatory performance standards for gas stoves so that we can make sure that they are meeting a health protective levels of pollutants inside our homes. Appliance manufacturers say they're working on voluntary standards to limit nitrogen dioxide from gas stoves. Wait, so why don't manufacturers make and sell these cleaner burners in gas stoves already? Like, what, what's the problem? One reason is is that iconic blue flame. It goes away on infrared burners, and that's a big part of their marketing. It is? Uh, wow. <laughs> yes. A lot of utilities feature that blue flame in their logo. Wow. And also, these burners, they're more expensive, and they can be a little harder to clean. But most importantly, consumers just haven't demanded a cleaner burner. Mm. But that may be changing now that uh, gas stoves are in the news again. I talked with uh, Frank Johnson. He's at GTI Energy. That's a gas industry research organization. And he says they're working on new burner improvements now. The design of cooking equipment has not changed a lot over time, but it's starting to change now. And it's just going to take time for those to become available. And for gas utilities, that stove is key. It doesn't consume a lot of gas, but it's considered kind of this gateway appliance. People like cooking on them, and if there's already a gas stove in a house, it's more likely that consumers will burn gas in their furnace, their water heater, or clothes dryer. Exactly. Okay, well, the reason we're talking more about this now is because of all the regulation issues that have been discussed earlier this month. In fact, somebody on the Consumer Product Safety Commission was talking about banning gas stoves. Is that a real possibility, you think? You know, it seems unlikely to me, but the commission is starting on March 1st to look at the available science about health and safety risks. Uh, Commissioner Richard Trumpka, he's the one you mentioned about banning gas stoves. He said yeah. that in December. And I'll just summarize what he said, that uh, that uh, these processes usually can take a long time, but this one could happen by this time next year. That is NPR's Jeff Brady. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. More than half a million people go to prison every year in America, and Colorado is one of the latest states trying a new approach to support inmates through an experimental unit focused less on punishment and more on keeping people from returning to incarceration. Older inmates mentor younger ones. Colorado Public Radio's Dan Boyce reports. Jennifer Benson and her husband Gary are touring the Arkansas Valley Correctional Facility in southeastern Colorado, visiting from their home in Idaho. 
I can tell you um, having a child in prison is devastating and heartbreaking and honestly I never thought we would go from proud army parents to prison parents. About five years ago, Benson's son Bradley was locked up here, 20 years old and facing a 29-year sentence for assault. Going from the army to this, I thought I had found my purpose, right? And so now I'm in prison and like it seemed hopeless, right? Benson says his first few years in prison, he felt like he could only focus on survival, always watching his back. Terry Gay knows all about that. Like Bradley Benson, Gay went to prison in his early 20s. He's been there for 18 years now and says it's mostly been about punishment. That's the only way they can benefit from it is to keep us down, right? Keep us confined, you know, to, to, to slam us down and, and give us a minimal amount of resources. But then something changed. Colorado's Department of Corrections is trying out a new approach to prison that's more focused on rehabilitation than punishment. A year ago, they opened a new unit with different, more relaxed rules based on systems in Germany and Norway. This is APOD, and this is Changemaker Village. Gay shows me around. It looks more like a college dorm than a prison cell block. All the aesthetics is completely different than any other pod in this whole facility. A big screen TV hangs on a bright, multicolored wall. Couches, a kitchen with a microwave, absolutely packed bookcases, and way less tension. I can sleep with my door open. I would never do that in prison. I can really do that here. Sometimes I forget to close my door at night. This is the Restoring Promises unit. Younger inmates like Bradley Benson are paired with older mentors like Gay. I never thought I'd be a part of something like this. Like this right here is amazing. Gay is one of about a dozen mentors accepted into this experiment. He's hopeful it'll give him a shot at maybe getting his freedom back one day. But even if that doesn't happen, working with the younger guys has changed him. I want to add value to these young men so they can be of value to their loved ones. Someone had to teach me that. And I feel like now I'm ready for that. At an event celebrating the first year of this Restoring Promises unit, Ryan Shanahan with the Vera Institute of Justice says efforts like these focus on reforming young inmates. Vera's a New York-based nonprofit that started helping states set up special correctional units like this one in 2017. The reason why we target young adults, 18 to 25-year-olds, is because they're one of the hardest age groups to work with when they're inside. They commit more violence than other age groups. Shanahan says young men are also more likely to end up back in prison, so there's a potentially huge return on investment for every one of these young guys who can be straightened out. Also, Frankly, the staff morale on Restoring Promise housing units is significantly higher. So in a place like Colorado that's having staffing shortages, might this be part of the solution? 25-year-old Bradley Benson is likely facing at least 10 more years before he's eligible for parole. He's getting certified as a personal trainer and wants to do that on the outside, but until then. I hope to take on one of those mentor roles and really being able to help other young men find their purpose. His parents say watching him improve and set goals is bringing some joy to their lives as well because they say they're serving his entire sentence with him. For NPR News, I'm Dan Boyce at the Arkansas Valley Correctional Facility in Colorado. 
Embattled New York Republican Congressman George Santos is stepping down from his committee assignments. The move comes as outcry continues over his fabricated personal and professional biography. Santos dodged reporters today when asked to comment. Questions will be answered to the appropriate people. The media is not judge and jury of anything. NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt has more. Questions around George Santos have been swirling since he arrived on Capitol Hill. The New York freshman has been under scrutiny over claims he deceived voters with false details about his biography, including his religion, family history, education, and professional resume. A New York Times investigation has also called into question many of his claims around the source of his campaign funds. Santos has admitted to various fabrications, but has denied other wrongdoing. Why are you confident I'm you'll confident be clear? I'm confident I'll be clear because I, I have nothing to hide. On Tuesday, he told his colleagues he was making a change. Now, we just uh, got out of conference, and George has voluntarily removed himself uh, from committees as he goes through this process. That's Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who chairs the GOP conference. Santos was placed on the Science, Space, and Technology Committee and the Small Business Committee. Roger Williams, who chairs the latter committee, said he was surprised by the move, but supports the decision, saying the attention surrounding Santos was distracting. For a while, the, the question I was getting asked by all of you is, is where, where, where are you going to put him that came to do this? It was, became about him. It's not about him. It's about our committee. Yeah. The Texas Republican said Santos told his colleagues in a closed-door conference meeting that his recusal is temporary. I think there's a threshold that he feels like that he's not the issue anymore. And when he hits that, it sounds like he wants to get back on committees and get going. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was also at the meeting, said Santos was not pressured into stepping down from his committees by leadership. He just felt like um, that there was so much drama, really, over the situation. Several Republican members of the House, as well as Republicans in his New York district, have called on Santos to resign. But GOP leadership, who hold a narrow four-seat majority in the House, have said that decision should ultimately be left up to voters. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, The Capitol. Putting yourself out there is often hard and scary. Music artist Omar Apollo knows the feeling well. I didn't want to sing in the house. I was so embarrassed. Even my dad told me I was terrible. But after a few weeks of practice, he changed his dad's mind, and now he's nominated for a Grammy. Omar Apollo's journey from his garage to global stardom on the next All Things Considered. Listen on the radio or ask your smart speaker to play your NPR member station. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. On this final trading day of the month, stocks were on the upswing. The Dow rose more than 1 percent, 369 points, to close at 34,086. S&P gained almost 1.5 percent to close at 4,077, capping its best January in four years. And the Nasdaq picked up nearly 1 and 3 quarters percent to finish the day at 11,585. Boston-based New Balance assigned baseball star Shohei Otani to a long-term endorsement deal. Otani plays for the Los Angeles Angels and is the only player ever to be selected as starting pitcher and leadoff hitter in the MLB's All-Star Game. Terms of the deal have not been disclosed, but New Balance says it will partner with him on campaigns that include the release of a limited-edition baseball cleat that's due out next month. It's 419.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Celtics guard Marcus Smart says there's no timeline set for his return to play. Smart injured his ankle earlier this month in a game in Toronto. Coach Joe Mazzula calls Smart's status day-to-day. This is 90.9 WBUR, 34 degrees in the Boston area. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. A group of black citizens in Oregon says their family homes were wrongfully taken from them decades ago. Now they're seeking compensation from the city of Portland and a local hospital through a federal civil lawsuit. Katie Riddle reports. It's been more than 50 years since he moved away from his neighborhood in North Portland. But Claude Bowles can still remember the smell fresh baked bread. The bakery uh, that was just right across the street from where my grandparents lived. He describes a kind of blissful freedom that he and his six siblings enjoyed. We'd go over there and they would just hand us hot bread out of the window of the bakery and we'd take it to my grandmother's house. We'd slather it with butter. His grandparents' house is no longer standing. He points to where it used to be on an old map. This is their house right here. 223 North Cook Street. Today, Bull's lawyers argue the house would be worth close to a half million dollars. Where their home stood, it's a parking lot now. And, you know, and when I, I think about it, yeah, it just kind of, you know, it does something to me. That parking lot is adjacent to Legacy Emanuel Hospital. That's who acquired the house from his family. Bowles is one of more than two dozen descendants suing the hospital and the city of Portland. Bowles declined to comment for this story. In a statement, they said they're reviewing the case. I remember the anguish of my grandfather not understanding what was happening. What was happening to his grandfather, says Bowles, was that the hospital was intimidating him, forcing him to give up his house. The family had moved from Alabama to Oregon. His grandfather found work there in a foundry. The house was 3,000 square feet on three levels. It was his legacy. I remember him always telling me, you know, hey, you have four sisters that, you know, they may or may not meet a man that will treat them nicely. And if that's the case, they can always come here because I've made a way for them. And this is what I want you to do. You always, you hang on to this house. And what do you remember about once your grandparents had to move? What was the new place like? Ooh, wow, that was very different. Um, we ended up, I mean, spreading out uh, into a more Caucasian kind of neighborhood where you weren't really accepted. A very functioning, close-knit neighborhood that's supporting its people is an extremely precious and all-too-rare thing. 
Mindy Fuller loves studies urban policy and health at the New School in New York. She's researched something called the Federal Urban Renewal Program from 1949 to 1973. There were thousands of these kinds of projects. Many city governments argued these neighborhoods were blighted. In the end, Fuller Love says, roughly a million people were pushed out of their homes, two-thirds people of color. And so to have that snatched away from you without your consent, this is a, a very brutal, very brutal thing. And many people are suffering to one degree or another decades later. Urban renewal policies were undoubtedly racist, says Fuller Love, but they were legal. This case in Portland accuses the city and the hospital of violating the law even then. The suit claims they conspired, bullied, and coerced Black people into selling their homes without fair compensation. Then, the plaintiffs claim, the hospital itself would create blight by neglecting the empty houses. This is my grandmother. Juanita Biggs is another plaintiff. She's holding a picture. And we call her Big Mama. And I love you, Big Mama. Big stands with the help of her walker by a freeway on-ramp. She points to a passerby. The house would be, would have been where, he, where he's walking. That's, that's where her house was. About 50 feet, maybe. Yeah, and, and this area here was the house where another family stayed. Biggs is almost 82 now. She was a young woman when her family was forced to move. You know, you see your grandparents, and you're there with them playing checkers and everything, and talking about good old times and stuff. And then everybody's happy. And then all of a sudden, everybody's sad. Juanita Biggs says coming to this neighborhood makes her sad for her family, for Big Mama, and everything taken from them. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Sabrina Kronk. 20 years ago, Sabrina was a newly single mother living near Nashville. Things were tough financially, but she just landed a new job and life was looking up. That is, until one fall morning when she got into her car to take her daughter to daycare and the car would not start. My heart just sunk. Finances were just so limited at that point. And I'd already been pouring a lot of money into the car Um, The car eventually rumbled to a start, and I knew I had to drive straight to the service center at the car dealership and not stop anywhere else so I could get there in one piece and hopefully it wouldn't break down on the side of the road. So we drove straight to the dealership, pulled into the service bay, and the service technicians started taking out my daughter's car seat and putting it in the courtesy car that would drive us to her daycare and work. And I realized they had done it so many times that it was like we had our own personal pit crew. You know, you pull in and they start taking care of things without even being told what to do. They just knew to transfer everything. They would even shuttle us to the front of the line like they didn't want her to have to wait or me to have to wait. Um, Drove me to her daycare and then I walked to work, which wasn't far And so at the end of the day, they called me, told me the courtesy car was on the way and that it would be ready when I got there that afternoon to pick up. So I'll walk up to the cashier after we arrived and she told me there was no charge. They had miraculously found the part I needed at no cost. 
and I said, could you check that? Like, what is the labor cost going to be today? And she said that the service technicians had donated their labor. And I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. So I asked her if she would please check with the manager. I just wanted to make sure. And um, he came over to me and just told me just to not worry about it. Everything was taken care of, just to focus on taking care of my daughter. I'll just never forget that kindness and generosity. In them doing that, it made it possible for us to survive financially the rest of the month. They say when you're at the end of your lifeline, you know, tie a piece of string on it and hang on. Well, they allowed me to do that that day. Sabrina Kronk of Nashville, Tennessee. Her daughter Katie is now an adult. Both Sabrina and Katie have received their master's degrees, and Sabrina just celebrated her 20th anniversary at the university where she works. They think back on their personal pit crew with fondness and gratitude. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Today is the first day of legalized in-person sports betting in Massachusetts. WBUR's Walter Ruthman was there for the first bets to be placed. His story is in about 15 minutes on WBUR. And in about 25 minutes, why a Best Actress nomination has sparked controversy for this year's Academy Awards. Clouds should collect for this evening and overnight. Tonight should get darn cold tonight, about 20 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, clouds early, and then the sunshine should eventually emerge, rising to just about freezing tomorrow. For Thursday, sunny, a little bit milder, temperatures in the upper 30s. Tonight at 7 o'clock, the murder of a Utah family at the hands of their father has sparked a conversation among Mormon women in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Power and safety tonight on On Point, starting at 7 on 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, where generations have experienced the joys of summer. Daily swim lessons in heated pools and A.C. for indoors. MaplewoodYearRound.com This month, a Utah man murdered his wife and five children, and that surfaced a conversation among LDS women about power, vulnerability, and safety in their church. The husband has the power of God, and the wife doesn't. That's On Point, tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Jurors in the seditious conspiracy trial against members of the Proud Boys are seeing social media posts from before the siege on the U.S. Capitol. NPR's Carrie Johnson has more. An FBI agent walked the jury through video and writings by leaders of the far-right Proud Boys. Agent Kate Camilleri says the defendants promoted a culture of violence and agreed to stop the peaceful transfer of power 
on January 6, 2021. She also testified about a book cited by Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio called The 48 Laws of Power, with lessons like conceal your intentions and always say less than necessary. Defense lawyers say there was no plan to disrupt the electoral count. They've sought to cast doubt on the Justice Department investigation. Judge Timothy Kelly warned defense lawyers to follow the rules of decorum after a series of what he called snide remarks. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. President Biden continued his Rail Week tour with a stop in New York City today and the Westside Rail Yard, where he announced a $292 million grant from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Plan toward the long-awaited Hudson Tunnel Project. The first piece of the new Hudson Tunnel is being built. It's one of the biggest parts of the Gateway Program. Now let me say this at the outset. This is just the beginning It's the beginning of finally constructing a 21st century rail system that's long, long overdue in this country. Biden says that project will improve reliability for the 200,000 passengers that travel each weekday to and from Manhattan on Amtrak and New Jersey Transit, the busiest corridor in the U.S. The tunnel opened in 1910. Its structure has deteriorated over time and it was badly damaged by Superstorm Sandy. Wall Street higher by the closing bell, the Dow up 368 points. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Negotiations continue today between the city of Woburn and its public school teachers. The educators are striking for a second day. Massachusetts Teachers Association President Max Page says teachers are fighting for respect and what he calls a living wage. Page says because state law bans strikes by public employees, it gives the city an unfair advantage. The city has used tactics of not bargaining, of trying to like intimidate with putting police officers around the schools. And of course, they are also doing their intimidation through filing charges and going to court. Yesterday, a court ordered the teachers to end their work stoppage. They have defied the order. City officials have said their latest contract offer is fair. In-person sports betting is now legal in Massachusetts. The first ever bets were placed at the state's three casinos at 10 this morning. Wagers are cash only to prevent problem gambling and credit card debt. State gaming regulators are expected to approve online wagering beginning in March. Lawmakers estimate sports betting could generate $60 million in annual revenue for the state. That's on top of licensing fees, which must be renewed every five years. More than 30 states have legalized sports betting since 2018, when the Supreme Court threw out a federal law that banned the practice in most states. Massachusetts Senator Edward Markey wants airlines to reel in their fees. He is reintroducing the Forbidding Airlines for Imposing Ridiculous Fees Act, or the FAIR Fees Act, The proposed legislation would prohibit airlines from imposing baggage, seat, and cancellation fees that are disproportionate to the actual service provided. Markey also reintroduced the Airline Passengers Bill of Rights. It calls for timely refunds and rebooking options for passengers when there's an airline-caused delay or cancellation. And starting tonight, there will be intermittent lane closures in both directions of Starrow Drive and Soldiers Field Road in Boston. The disruptions will be in place from 8 tonight until 5 Uh, Thursday morning through until Thursday morning at 5. The Department of Conservation and Recreation says the lane closures are needed so crews can repair and replace fences and guardrails along the roads. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. 
34 degrees now in the Boston area, such a nice end to the final day of the month. We should have overcast skies moving in tonight, though. Temperatures moving down, settling at just about 20 degrees tonight. Then tomorrow, we should wake up to clouds before the sunshine burns through. Top temperatures tomorrow about 32. It is 34 degrees now in the Boston area at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Yesterday, six of the seven states that share the Colorado River announced a new agreement to save a lot of water. California was the lone outlier. It does not like the plan. But coming up with a plan is important. Because if the states keep using water at the present rate, America's two biggest reservoirs could drop so low that they will no longer be able to produce hydroelectric power. Here to explain more is Alex Hager, who covers water for member station KUNC in northern Colorado. Hey, Alex. Howdy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Alex, start off by telling us about this deal. Well, the federal government is in a real crunch to keep more water in Lake Mead and Lake Powell. They have both shrunk to record lows after 23 years of drought. So they're considering changes to the amount of water that will be released from those reservoirs for the next couple of years. They asked the states for input, and this is how the states responded. Six of them got together and said, we've got an idea for how to find one and a half million acre feet of extra water. That is enough to supply millions of homes every year. So the state said every year we release a certain amount of water from Lake Mead down to parts of Nevada, California, and Arizona. But the amount of water in the lake drops even more from evaporation. So if you just reduce the amount of water being released from Lake Mead by the amount that evaporates, that will help keep water levels from falling further. So this plan to me sounds like it's sort of correcting for an accounting issue in many ways. Is it also asking cities or farmers that draw on the Colorado to sacrifice and use less water? No, they they came up with this plan because it is so hard to make cuts on the river. It supplies 40 million people and a massive multi-billion dollar agricultural industry. If you keep more water in the reservoir, that is water that will not flow to someone's tap. So in effect, it is a cut to, to people in California and Arizona. But accounting for evaporation is something that a lot of the states can agree on. Right now, some users have a legal right to water that doesn't even really exist because it's evaporating before it can flow downstream from the reservoir. Important to remember here, this is not enough water to save the river. It it is just a Band-Aid. The federal government says they would need to keep two to four million acre feet in the reservoirs. This evaporation proposal would only account for one and a half million. The Southwest is really just trying to hold it together until 2026 when the current rules for the river expire and they can have some big discussions about more permanent changes. Okay, so if California is going to get less water, I I can understand the state's opposition to this plan by the six other states. But does California have a different solution? 
Yeah, California uses more water from the Colorado River than any other state, and their water rights are some of the oldest. So that means that when there's a shortage, they will be the last in line to lose their water. There's some big farming areas in Southern California that are driving some of this discussion. They're saying, we're legally entitled to this much water and we intend to use it. The state says it's going to put out its own proposal. They have not yet given any details on that. A lot of the experts I talk to think this standoff is bound for litigation and that the courts are going to decide how it ends. So, Alex, what are the next steps in the standoff? Yeah, well, this agreement is not a deal. It is just a proposal for how the feds could proceed. So, you know, we'll see. I I talked to a lot of analysts who said the Biden administration will probably adopt parts of this proposal, but not all of it. But no matter what happens, the water supply is likely to keep shrinking. Climate change has made the region drier than it's been in 1800 years. It's getting hotter and there are a whole lot of reasons that water is really not likely to come back. So the states need to get together and find a way to bring down demand to meet that challenge that's brought on by the changing climate. Alex Hager of member station KUNC in northern Colorado. Thank you. Thank you. ExxonMobil just announced its biggest annual profit in history. In fact, it is the biggest annual profit for any U.S. or European oil company ever. It's all, of course, connected to gas prices, the climate, and the politics surrounding both. NPR's Camila Dominoski joins us now to explain. Hey, Camila. Hi, Elsa. So I don't think anybody's surprised that the oil industry made a lot of money, but exactly how much money are we talking about here? We're talking about almost $56 billion. Wow. And yeah, it may not be a surprise, but it is really a comeback story because the oil industry and especially Exxon crashed hard after the beginning of the Mm -hmm. pandemic. And now clearly it's back. I mean, last year was just remarkable for the oil industry. Prices were high. Russia's invasion of Ukraine was a really big part of it. And that just boosted profits across the entire sector. Okay, so I'm curious, what's Exxon doing with all of that money? Well, a lot of it is going back to shareholders. And that means big paydays for investment firms and for executives. But, you know, it's it's not just Wall Street. Exxon is a very popular stock for retirement accounts. So for listeners, unless you went out of your way to avoid oil in your portfolio, you might be getting some of that cash. And there's actually a really important shift that's going on here. Um, In the past, when oil companies made boatloads of money, they would spend a lot of that money on drilling new wells to make more oil. But right now, oil companies are putting a little less money on drilling and sending tremendous amounts of money right back to investors. That means a little less oil, which helps, there's lots of factors, helps keep oil prices high, keeps profits up, and it keeps investors happy. Yeah, investors, but I mean, drivers are not happy about high gasoline prices. So is anyone pushing back on oil companies over these profits? Oh, yeah. President Biden called oil profits a windfall of war last year. The White House just released a statement chewing oil companies out for sending money to shareholders instead of producing more. In Europe, they actually passed windfall taxes, which are taking a chunk of profits and sending it to households. Exxon is actually suing over that. And you might say, hey, the company can clearly afford to, you know, throw $2 billion to the people of Europe. But here's Exxon's chief financial officer, Kathy Michaels. It's the opposite of what is needed, right? So what's needed right now is more supply. And instead, what's been put in place is a penalty, you know, on the broad energy sectors. 
So this is the oil industry's response to these taxes. Says, look, if you think prices are too high, then you want us to pump more oil. Clearly, we're not drilling as much as we could be. But if you tax us, we might decide to pump even less. Wait, but but then that raises a question: Do politicians want more oil? I mean, aren't they also worried about climate change? Yeah, both of those things are true. It's definitely a source of tension. I mean, take Biden. He definitely wants companies to pump more oil to bring prices down because the world is dependent on oil. Oil powers the global economy. But over time, world leaders want less oil. They want to shift to electric vehicles and heat pumps and clean energy because burning fossil fuels is causing catastrophic climate change, right? The right. big question is: When you say over time we'll use less oil, how much time are we talking? Climate advocates say it needs to be a transition that happens as quickly as possible to reduce damage to the planet and to ourselves. The oil industry is in no hurry, as these earnings show. Selling oil remains incredibly profitable. Indeed, that is NPR's Camila Dominoski. Thank you so much, Camila. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Sports betting is legal in Massachusetts. Today, the state became one of more than 30 states that have legalized the practice. WBUR's Walter Wuthman was at Encore Boston Harbor Casino in Everett this morning when the very first bets were placed. 30 people lined up at Encore's new sports betting kiosks to place their bets at 10 a.m., the moment sports betting went live. Chris Desenzo of Arlington put $100 on the Kansas City Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. Felt good. I've been waiting for this for a long time. Desenzo said he plans to come back again. I like to just, you know, place bets, but not with, you know, not with bookies. <laughs> That's why you can you know, lose money you bring in stuff, you know? Nearby, Matilda Bonfordeschi of Revere also put $100 on the Chiefs. I did the money line. I have no idea. <laughs> she looked down at the paper slip the kiosk spit out to record her bet. I believe I make $100. State officials predict the newly legal sports betting industry will bring in between 30 and $60 million in tax revenue each year. I think you're looking at a potential gold mine. That's Massachusetts House Speaker Ron Mariano. He led the bill to legalize sports betting through the legislature last summer. But he lamented the fact it took the Massachusetts Gaming Commission about six months to write regulations and begin allowing bets. I really think they could have gone a little faster, but uh, obviously they erred on the side of caution and, and took their time and wanted to make sure there were no, no major mistakes. So uh, you can't fault them for that. For now, bettors must place sports bets at one of the state's three casinos. The Gaming Commission hopes to roll out mobile betting on apps and websites in March. Experts who study the gambling industry predict many more people will participate once they can bet on games from their phones. Some worry that will lead to more problematic gambling. UMass Amherst researcher Rachel Volberg says people should be careful when gambling for the first time and only bet what they're willing to lose. There are some groups that we think 
will be vulnerable because of their lack of experience with gambling or because they're being targeted very specifically by the sports betting operators in an effort to grow the market. But at least on Tuesday, Massachusetts' first official sports bettors were reveling in the moment. Stephen Leslie of Woburn bet on the Philadelphia Eagles to win the Super Bowl. Kind of being you know, the first to make a bet in part of history, right, because it's history um, with sports betting now in Massachusetts. It's a great feeling. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Leslie said he felt good about the bet for multiple reasons. One, you could stay local, and two, you're giving the money back, you know, good or bad, to, uh, to Massachusetts. And you want to, if you're giving out money, give it to the state in which you live. Many of these enthusiastic new sports bettors will lose money on Super Bowl Sunday. But being one of the first to do it, that's a feeling money can't buy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. There are resources available for people struggling with compulsive gambling through Massachusetts Problem Gaming Helpline. You can visit the website gamblinghelplinema.org or call this number 1-800-327-5050. You'll be able to speak with a trained specialist to get support. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on Marketplace this evening. The economy of Ireland is dependent on big tech companies lured to the country with low taxes and lax regulations. And the European Union doesn't like the approach. And in my view, it is the Irish Data Protection Commission that is paralyzing Europe's enforcement against big tech. That's tonight on Marketplace starting at 6.30 on WBUR. It's 4.48. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections. With condo common area consultations, as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com. The Bruins and Celtics are both off tonight. Celtics guard Marcus Smart says there's no timeline set for his return to play. Smart injured his ankle earlier this month in a game in Toronto. Coach Joe Mazzula calls Smart's status day-to-day. January should end tonight with the kind of weather we expect from January. Cloudy and cold, about 20 degrees overnight. Then next month, meaning tomorrow, begins overcast. The sun should gradually break through, though. Temperature should lift to just about freezing. For Thursday, up around 38 degrees. Lots of sunshine ahead. The end of the week is looking just as bright and a little chillier daytime highs in the 20s. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston, holding steady at 34 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Circle Furniture, over 70 years of artisanal craftsmanship rooted in community and sustainability. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. CircleFurniture.com. Back in 1922... The states agreed on how to apportion the water from the Colorado River. They knew even then that the Colorado is the key to their survival. But the problem is that deal was really based on a fiction. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. About three years ago, the COVID-19 pandemic hit the U.S. in full force. And now the Biden administration has set an end date for the country's COVID emergency declarations. Yesterday, the White House announced that the national emergency and public health emergency will expire this spring on May 11th. And that will have implications for funding and other pandemic-related policies. To explain what all of this means, we're joined now by Jen Cates, a senior vice president at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Okay, so to be clear, COVID-19, it's not as deadly as it once was, but it's still very much with us, right? Like hundreds of people are still dying every day. Lots of people are still getting sick from these new variants. Why end these declarations in May? Yeah, good question. It's true. There are about 500 people dying of COVID every day. And that if that's the new normal, then it's a, it's a big change from where we were. Yeah. And we are still living with COVID. But stepping back, I think the, you know, most of us watching the situation pretty much felt the administration was going to announce an end to the these declarations per, very soon. And what happened is they kind of got their hand forced with the uh, with Republicans in the House pushing some bills to end this. And uh, that's why they made the announcement last night. But uh, it does raise questions. How, how do you decide what's the right time? And, you know, I think I think it's it's going to be a transition that we're going to have to manage carefully. Right. OK, so what does that transition look like? Like, practically speaking, what will ending these declarations mean in the lives of people day to day? Yeah, so I think there's a lot that has to be carefully managed, but in, in the most immediate way, most people will not feel an earth-shattering change, and that's the good news. I think where you, you know the average person might notice it the most, you know how we can get these eight free uh, COVID home tests every month, mm-hmm. and our insurance company will will cover them. Mm-hmm. That's going away. So if people are accustomed to that, and I know some people get them religiously every every month, yeah. that's not going to be there for you anymore. And the other thing that people will notice yeah. is they'll start to be some cost sharing for testing that you might get from a doctor or treatments, maybe not right away, but that's going to come into play as well. What about the bigger picture? Like, are there concerns that this will somehow limit the ability of hospitals and public health entities to to deal with COVID? It's there is a concern. And I think this is what I why we have to think about this as hopefully being managed as a smooth transition where some of this is done, you know, hospitals have to be involved, payers have to be involved, the private sector to manage it. And so it's not a cliff. So this doesn't happen, you know, one day with May 10th, things are one way and May 11th, they completely change because that will disrupt the health system. Totally. So I think that's the, that, that's really the way to think about it. And we just don't know how smooth that's going to be. Well, back in September, President Biden did say that the pandemic is over that's a quote. What do you think the symbolic weight is of, of letting these emergency declarations end? You know, on the one hand, a lot of people in America feel like COVID's over, even though we, like we said 500 people a day are dying. On the other, these this kind of declaration ending does carry symbolic weight. And so there are going to be people that say, great, I don't have to worry anymore. And I think that's going to be a little difficult to manage. And it'll be up to public health officials and those of us working in this to still convey that this isn't completely over. And there's a lot that we have to, you know, be pay attention to and be careful about in the future. Absolutely. Jen Cates, a senior vice president at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. When Kate Blanchett won a Best Actress honor at this year's Critics' Choice Awards, she mentioned other actresses she felt should have been recognized. 
Best actress, I mean, it is extremely arbitrary considering how many extraordinary performances there have been. Andrea Riseborough and Tang Wei. Turns out Blanchett was one of several movie stars who praised Andrea Riseborough, a well-regarded British actress who surprised Oscar watchers by landing her first nomination this year for Best Actress. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences reviewed her grassroots publicity campaign, and in a statement, Academy CEO Bill Kramer said today it would not rescind her nomination, but, quote, we did discover social media and outreach campaigning tactics that caused concern. The these tactics are being addressed with the responsible parties directly. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins is here to explain. Hey, Eric. Hi. So, Eric, first of all, why was this an issue? Why did the Oscar Academy review this <clears throat> campaign? Well, I guess we should understand that Hollywood studios and industry people spend lots of money and effort creating these massive public campaigns to convince the voting members of the Academy that their films and their stars deserve an Oscar nomination. Now, instead of that kind of conventional campaign, Riseborough's performance in a small film called To Leslie was supported by famous actors who were her friends, like Gwyneth Paltrow, Edward Norton, Amy Adams, many others. Some held screenings of the film. The Academy has rules about how potential nominees can campaign, so apparently they'd look to make sure that none of those rules were violated this year. But the Academy's new statement doesn't say exactly what campaign tactics they saw that concerned them or what they said to the parties who were involved. Now, what's interesting is that some supporters of Riseborough saw this uh, effort by well-known actors as a grassroots way to get around those expensive Oscar campaigns that smaller films just can't afford. Now, here's Mark Marin, the comic and podcast who co-stars with Riseborough and Two Leslie, talking about this on his WTF podcast. It so threatens their system to where they're completely uh, kind of bought out by corporate interests in the form of studios and millions of dollars put into months and months of advertising campaigns, publicity, uh, you know, screenings. So, Eric, is this just a case of big Hollywood studios who are trying to maintain control of a process that they dominate? Well, there's a few ways of looking at this. I mean, when the Oscar nominations were announced, several black women who were expected to be strong contenders were left out, including Danielle Deadweiler, who played Emmett Till's mother in the movie Till, and Viola Davis, who was the lead in the film The Woman King. And after Riseborough's nomination emerged, there was some concern that Academy voters maybe responded to Riseborough's A-list supporters, but ignored black women in movies with bigger audiences. And what's interesting to me is that some of Riseborough's supporters seem to have a tough time recognizing that a group of famous, wealthy actors championing one of their friends is its own kind of privilege. I mean, they certainly have a point about how smaller films are overlooked by the current system. But the question is, what's the best way to solve that? And so where do you think this all goes from here, given that we now know that Riseborough's nomination is not going to be rescinded? Well, in his statement, Academy CEO Bill Kramer also says, quote, it's apparent the components of the regulations must be clarified to help create a better framework for respectful, inclusive, and unbiased campaigning, end quote. I hope the A-list actors inspired by Riseborough's nomination think twice, because people who are disadvantaged in one way in show business can still be advantaged in another way. That was NPR TV critic Eric Dagens.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Still 34 degrees in the Boston area. The sun is just set. Clouds should move in tonight. Temperatures tumbling to 20. A little bit breezy overnight tonight. Then tomorrow clouds last into the morning before it turns sunny again. High temperatures about 32 degrees. For Thursday, more sunshine and rising a few degrees to top out at 38. Should be colder toward the end of the week. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The time is 4.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR News Station. Coming up, it's the final day of the month, and we're taking stock of the economy. There's been a string of negative news about the economy since the new year. Even so, stock and bond markets have made big gains in January. So our question is, what gives? It's Tuesday, January 31st, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, some nursing homes in New York have been making large profits even as they collect pandemic support from the government. Now the state's attorney general is getting involved. She accuses one set of owners of taking $16 million of profits over four years and others of taking similarly large amounts. And when a pharmaceutical drug has been on the market for a while, it's supposed to go generic and the price is supposed to go down. For a blockbuster arthritis drug, Humira, that hasn't happened until now. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met today with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah in the Israeli-occupied West Bank and said there has been, quote, a shrinking horizon of hope for Palestinians. More from NPR's Daniel Estrin. Abbas said Palestinians are not willing to endure the Israeli occupation of the West Bank forever. He says he's ready to work with the U.S. to re-enter peace talks with Israel on hold for nearly a decade. But the U.S. has said the sides are not ready yet for peace talks. Blinken offered condolences for Palestinian civilians who have been killed in Israeli operations in the past year. He called on both sides to condemn violence, no matter the victim's identity. After last week's violence, some of the deadliest attacks Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank have endured in years— 
Blinken called for urgent steps to lower tensions. But Blinken did not outline any specific proposals or agreements he reached with the Palestinian or Israeli leadership. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Ramallah. In a report requested by Congress, the State Department says Russia is not complying with the key arms control agreement. As NPR's Michelle Kellman explains, there are no signs of any diplomatic talks to resolve the issue. Russia abruptly called off the latest round of talks to get the New START treaty back on track. At issue are the inspections both sides are supposed to be able to carry out in Russia and the U.S. The State Department says Russia is refusing to facilitate inspections and has yet to reschedule a meeting to resolve this. Inspections were suspended during the height of the global COVID-19 pandemic. The State Department now says there's nothing preventing Russian inspectors from coming here. Officials say the U.S. remains ready to work with Russia to implement the treaty, which it says is an important instrument of stability and predictability. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Winter weather is bringing a wide swath of ice to parts of the country, leading to numerous flight cancellations today. Already at last check, more than 2,600 flights have been canceled in the U.S., with many of those canceled flights in Texas. The Federal Reserve Committee that sets interest rates meets this week. NPR Scott Horsley reports members are paying close attention to a new report on wage growth. The Labor Department says wages and benefits rose just 1% in the last three months of 2022. That's a slowdown from the previous quarter and the smallest increase in a year. The news should be reassuring to inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve, who begin a two-day policy meeting today. While the job market is still strong and unemployment's at a half-century low, there's little sign of the kind of wage price spiral that fueled runaway inflation in the 1970s. The Fed is expected to boost interest rates again this week as part of its ongoing effort to curb inflation, but markets expect a rate hike of just a quarter percentage point. That would be the smallest jump since last March. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Ahead of any Fed action, the Dow shot up 368 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Legalized in-person sports betting began today at Massachusetts' three casinos. Adam Frenier was at MGM Springfield when the first bet was placed there. The wager was placed by Springfield Mayor Dominic Sarno, who put $50 in the Philadelphia Eagles to win the Super Bowl. Big win for Springfield, big win for MGM, big win for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. During ceremonies marking the occasion, MGM Springfield President Chris Kelly touted how the new attraction could benefit the casino and the city. We are celebrating the multiplier effect that this social experience can create for restaurants, for retail, for gaming, and for our city's economic engine. This is the first step in rolling out sports betting in Massachusetts. The next is expected to come in early March when sports betting online and on mobile devices is scheduled to begin. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. Secretary of State Bill Galvin will not take a pay raise that he's entitled to this year. He is the only one of the state's six constitutional officers who will not accept a 20 percent pay hike. The increases were prompted by a 2017 law that ties the officers' salaries to changes in state wages over the previous two years. Galvin did not elaborate on why he's turning down the raise. Results from the city of Boston's annual homeless census are due in a few months. Mayor Michelle Wu and more than 200 volunteers walked the streets last night to count the number of people who live without shelter and try to connect them with help. WBR's Beth Healy has more. It was relatively mild as the mayor made her way through downtown streets with her housing and health care experts. They knelt down to talk to men huddled under blankets in doorways and MBTA exits. 
One man told the mayor he'd had a job and a place to live until the pandemic, but then things fell apart. So many of our families, when the housing market is so tough, when prices at the grocery store are so high, when there are so many stresses, it just takes one unexpected situation to push you over the edge. The city housed more than 1,100 homeless people last year under a federal grant program, but there are more still on the streets, and a cold snap is coming this weekend. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. A Cambridge software company is laying off 500 employees. HubSpot is one of the biggest tech firms in the Boston area. It provides software and data analysis for businesses. The company says because of inflation and slowing customer demand, it has to lay off 7% of its total workforce. In the forecast, 34 degrees still. Clouds gather tonight. Temperatures drop all the way to 20. A little bit breezy tonight. And then tomorrow, clouds in the morning. Eventually, we should see the sunshine tomorrow with highs only about freezing. Thursday, sunny again, rising a few degrees to top out at 38. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Looking at the headlines, there is a lot of concern about the future of the U.S. economy. But Wall Street just had a banner start to 2023 after a pretty miserable 2022. This has been the best January for the tech-heavy Nasdaq in decades. And NPR's David Gura is here to explain what is going on. Hey there. Hey, Juana. So, David, why are markets rallying? You know, so much of this has to do with inflation. Stocks struggled last year because of it, and now that there are signs high inflation is easing, there's been this reversal and stocks are surging. Look, there are economic indicators that are raising concerns, including consumer spending, which is starting to soften, but there are signs the U.S. economy may be more resilient than many economists expected. Just look at the labor market. Now, you may have seen these high-profile layoffs. PayPal, the latest one, announcing today it's cutting 2,000 jobs, but In many sectors, there are still staffing shortages. CVS and Walmart, for instance, announcing pharmacies won't be open as long because there aren't enough pharmacists. So right now, investors are feeling good. They're thinking, hey, maybe the Federal Reserve is going to pull this off. It's going to nail this soft landing. It'll get inflation under control without starting a recession. Or if there is a recession, that downturn will not be a big one. Okay, so I've seen the companies are reporting earnings, updating Wall Street on how they did last quarter. Tell us what you're hearing. By and large, companies have done better than anticipated. Today, for instance, ExxonMobil said it raked in record profits in 2022. The oil giant made more than $55 billion. And last quarter, General Motors saw its profits surge. The carmaker said it's ironed ironed out some of those supply chain issues that really dogged it for a number of months. But with tech companies, it's a different story. This week, we'll hear from Meta, Facebook's parent company, along with Alphabet and Amazon. And all three of them have announced large job cuts lately. Of course, that's tough for each and every one of those laid-off workers, but Wall Street has applauded these companies for scaling back and course-correcting. Take Microsoft, for instance. It announced plans to cut 10,000 jobs, and in the week since then, its share price has actually gone up by about 4%. Hmm, Okay, so what could go wrong here? Well, all this optimism could be misplaced. A huge risk is high inflation could be more stubborn than Wall Street expects. And remember, a lot of investors and economists and policymakers did not see inflation surging as much as it did or inflation lasting as long as it has. 
There's also a risk that if there is a recession, that downturn could be deeper or longer lasting than Wall Street is forecasting. And the Fed is actually getting worried about whether the markets have gotten too optimistic. Basically, if they've gone too far, and one of many Fed policymakers have warned inflation could be more persistent than investors expect. You mentioned the Fed, so I'd like to ask you about their meeting. It's a two-day meeting that they're now halfway through. What are markets expecting when that meeting wraps up tomorrow? Almost everyone expects the Fed is going to raise interest rates again, but because of the latest economic data, it'll be a smaller hike of a quarter point. Remember, the Fed's fight against high inflation started with this string of larger hikes of three-quarters a point each. What Wall Street cares about the most is what Fed Chair Jerome Powell says at his news conference after that meeting. As I mentioned, the Fed's gotten worried markets are getting ahead of themselves. And Young Yu Ma told me he expects Powell will address that head on. Ma is the chief investment strategist at BMO Wealth Management. The Fed wants to signal caution. The Fed really wants to get inflation under control, not just in the short term, but but really set the stage for inflation to stay under control really for an extended period of time and, and for the medium and long term. Wall Street is looking for clues about how the Fed is going to approach interest rate hikes going forward. There is speculation that after another quarter point increase, the Fed could take a pause maybe even cut rates this year, given inflation is easing and the economy is slowing down. This press conference tomorrow is an opportunity for the Fed to rein in some of Wall Street's optimism, Juana, and its expectations. NPR's David Gura, thank you. Thank you. House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan will hold his first investigative hearing tomorrow on the Biden administration's border policies. Jordan once had contentious relationships with top Republican leaders, but now he's a key player in Speaker McCarthy's oversight agenda. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh has this look at Jordan's evolving role on the Hill. When Jordan arrived on Capitol Hill in 2007, he zeroed in on his quest to shrink the federal government as a member of the Budget Committee. Mr. Chairman, I am new to this committee. I'm I'm new to Congress. But I've already learned that around here, the game is called spend at every opportunity. He led a group of fiscal conservatives in 2010 called the Republican Study Committee. I like to tell folks we're supposed to be the conservative conscience for Republicans here in the nation's capital. And our job is to make sure Republicans act like Republicans. Jordan wasn't afraid to confront his own leaders. He helped found the House Freedom Caucus in 2015. That group targeted then-Speaker John Boehner, and their battles contributed to him stepping down later that year. Boehner, also from Ohio, labeled Jordan a political terrorist in an interview with CBS in 2021. I just never saw a guy who spent more time tearing things apart and never building anything, never putting anything together. Jordan regularly battled with GOP leaders, but now he's at the leadership table himself. Eight years after opposing McCarthy's first bid for speaker, he nominated him, and lobbied fellow hardliners to vote for him, too. I think Kevin McCarthy's the right guy to lead us. I really do, or I wouldn't be standing up here giving this speech. I came in with Kevin. We came in the same time 16 years ago. We haven't always agreed on everything, but I like his fight. I like his tenacity. And McCarthy is giving Jordan a huge platform as a key architect of the GOP probes of the Biden administration. The Ohio Republican, often seen in his signature rolled-up shirt sleeves and no suit jacket, was one of President Trump's fiercest defenders during his first impeachment. Democrats have never got over the fact that this new guy who's never been in this town, never been in politics, this new guy came in here and is shaking this place up, and that drives them crazy. Mick Mulvaney, a South Carolina Republican who served in the House with Jordan, was one of the founding members of the Freedom Caucus. When he moved over to work as White House Chief of Staff for President Trump, 
he leaned on Jordan as a key ally. You never know, you know, when the light is going to shine on you. You have to be ready. And I think Jim was. Jim did a great job, uh, I thought, on the uh, impeachment. I talked to him, you know, regularly during that period, and he was always on the ball. Mulvaney says Jordan's priority is more about leading probes than passing bills. I would look at Jim more as an investigator and somebody who's interested in transparency and accountability than I would describe him as a legislator. I don't think Jim would be very happy on the Financial Services Committee. I don't think he'd be happy on appropriations, but the man is made to run the Judiciary Committee. And Jordan already has a long list of inquiries, including border security, education policies during the pandemic, and the alleged bias by the FBI. He'll also lead a new subcommittee that will look into what the Ohio Republican calls the weaponization of the federal government. Texas Republican Chip Roy, a member of that panel, says Jordan's the best person to lead that new effort. I don't know anybody in town who's better prepared than Jim Jordan to go after the bureaucrats over in the executive branch and to bring a light to the weaponization of government against American people. I think he'll do a great job of it. Some House Republicans are already pressing for Jordan to move to impeach President Biden. Jordan says that's up to the Speaker and the GOP conference. But Mulvaney warns impeachment has become a political tool, and it should be preserved for instances when there is solid evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors. I think, I hope, that the Republicans will go back to that standard. If they end up impeaching Biden, it, it damn well better be for a really, really good reason. California Democrat Ted Lieu sits on the Judiciary Committee and says about the panel's new chairman... I believe he has very extreme views. I also believe that he believes in those views. So I respect that. Unlike Kevin McCarthy, who I believe doesn't actually believe in the things he says. Mulvaney warns one problem Jordan may face is keeping his investigations focused. And he says some lawmakers may be more worried about getting on TV than getting to the truth. It's going to be a challenge, there's no question, because lawmakers have learned that uh, being on the right committee can make them famous, and they like that. Jordan's first turn in the spotlight as chairman comes Wednesday. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. Punk rock pioneer Tom Verlaine died last week at 73 years old. He's best known as the frontman for the band Television, a fixture in the early New York punk scene, along with bands like Blondie, The Ramones, and The Talking Heads. Television got their start in the mid-70s at the iconic Manhattan music club, CBGB. Verlaine studied music as a kid, classical music, at boarding school, and he played the saxophone. At night, he would fall asleep listening to jazz on the radio. He wasn't really interested in popular music at first. Here's Verlaine on NPR's World Cafe in 2006. With some of the kind of wilder guitar things I started to hear on the radio, I started to like guitar. I think the Yardbirds, actually, and my girlfriend started playing me Bob Dylan records. I thought, this is real interesting, and if you play guitar, you know you could sing along with it and stuff, so I started doing that. Television recorded two albums in the 70s, Marquee Moon and Adventure. Though neither sold as well as some of their contemporaries' music, Verlaine's guitar playing and songwriting are celebrated and emulated to this day. 
The band broke up after releasing Adventure, but would reunite periodically to make music together. I think it's definitely the only one left from that late 70s New York period with the original lineup from its recordings, you know, and, uh, and there's no pressure to do anything. So we just sort of do stuff when we feel like we want to. It never becomes a kind of burden to anybody. It's just sort of a, a thing we do now and then. And in between those television reunions, Verlaine continued to make music, releasing solo albums and collaborating with another CBGB fixture, Patti Smith. Smith paid tribute to Tom Verlaine today in an essay for The New Yorker, remembering her dear friend as someone who, quote, possessed the child's gift of transforming a drop of water into a poem that somehow begat music. Mm. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. On this final trading day of the month, stocks were on the upswing. The Dow rose more than 1%, 369 points, to close at 34,086. S&P gained almost 1.5% to end the day at 4,077. It capped its best January in four years. And the Nasdaq picked up nearly one and three quarters percent to finish the day at 11,585. Consumer goods and medical device company Philips has not said how many workers in Massachusetts will be losing their jobs as part of a new round of layoffs. Yesterday, Philips announced plans to shed 6,000 jobs globally by 2015. That's on top of plans to cut 4,000 jobs. Philips North American headquarters is in Cambridge. It has 1,400 workers in the state. Business news comes up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. In the forecast, look for clouds to move in overnight tonight. Temperatures should fall all the way to 20 tonight. Should be a little bit breezy. Then for tomorrow, clouds should linger through the morning hours, eventually turning sunny once again. Highs about 32 degrees. Thursday, more sunshine, rising a few degrees to top out 38. Should be colder toward the end of the week. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. Bruins and Celtics are both off until tomorrow. Celtics guard Marcus Smart says there's no timeline for his return to play. Smart injured his ankle earlier this month in a game with Toronto. Coach uh, Joe Mazzula calls Smart's status day-to-day. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter and Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. When a drug has been on the market for decades, it's supposed to lose patent protection, leaving room for generics, which force the drug's price down. But for Humira, the blockbuster rheumatoid arthritis drug, that shift hadn't happened. Now, after more than 20 years of pricing impunity, Humira is about to face cheaper competition. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to explain the change. Hey, Sydney. Hey. Okay, so what exactly is happening today with Humira? Its first competitor has finally launched a drug called Amgevita. Amgevita is a biosimilar, which is like a generic, but not exactly. Generics are chemical copies of drugs. Think about look-alike blood pressure pills. Biosimilars are more complex. They're versions of drugs called biologics that are often antibodies or proteins. That's what Humira is, a biologic. It's been approved since 2002, but without a direct competitor, its maker, AbbVie, has been able to keep prices high. And there have been dozens of price hikes over the years. The latest one was a few weeks ago on January 3rd. Humira now costs around $7,000 a month before insurance. Wow. Wait, why haven't we had a Humira competitor like this until now? Well, there's a thicket of patents around Humira, and that has allowed AbbVie to maintain its monopoly. Here's Harvard Medical School's Amit Sarpadwari. You don't just patent the active ingredient. You can patent methods of use. You can patent methods of formulation. You can patent methods of uh, manufacture. He says many drug companies have exploited the U.S. patent system, but called Humira the poster child for the strategy. Humira has been the best-selling pharmaceutical for a while, topping $20 billion in worldwide sales in 2021. Wait, so have all of these patents, like, blocked the FDA from approving competitors? No. Actually, the FDA has approved seven Humira biosimilars, including this one, but they couldn't launch. Amgevita won FDA oh. approval in 2016, but there was litigation over the patents. Ultimately, there was a settlement that allowed Amgevita to launch today. That delay came with a big cost, however. Harvard's Sarpatwari worked on a study that showed Medicare would have saved more than $2 billion between 2016 and 2019 if Humira biosimilars were able to launch when they were approved. Okay, so the big question, will this new version of Humira be be any cheaper? Yes, but it's a little okay. complicated. Amgevita will launch with two prices according to the drug company that makes it, which is Amgen. One is 5% cheaper than Humira and the other is 55% cheaper. If your insurer or drug benefits manager negotiates rebates behind the scenes, they'll likely choose the higher price because if they pick the deeper discount, they won't get a big rebate. So the savings in the beginning will probably be modest. So what do you think patients can expect at, like, the pharmacy counter? The company tells me Amgevita won't be available at pharmacies for another week or two. But don't expect your pharmacist to just switch your Humira prescription over to Amgevita. Here's Aaron Crittenden of GoodRx, a website that helps patients find prescription drug coupons. You think about the traditional generic world, right, where doctor writes a brand and the pharmacy can just change it over to the generic. Uh, that's not the case here. That's because with biosimilars, there can be different rules. And doctors will likely need to see big savings to want to push you over to this new drug. So right now, particularly with the fact that both of them are on the same tiers in a lot of benefit plans, the copay for the patient will be the same. But there are expected to be several more Humero biosimilars this summer, and that could start to move the needle on price. Well, that's good news. That is NPR's Sydney Lupkin. Thank you, Sydney. You bet.
No matter what happens in the Super Bowl, history will be made at kickoff. Almost 70% of NFL players are now people of color, but for the first time ever, the game will feature two black starting quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs and Jalen Hurts of the Philadelphia Eagles. Doug Williams was the first black quarterback to lead his team in the Super Bowl 35 years ago, and we should note he did win that game. And Doug Williams joins us now on All Things Consider. Considered. Welcome. Good. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you for being here. Okay, so when you first saw that there was a chance of this becoming a reality, two black starting quarterbacks at football's biggest game, were you rooting for the Eagles and Chiefs to win last Sunday, or was this more kind of a it'll happen when it happens situation? I was rooting for Jalen and Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you you could say the Eagles and the Chiefs, basically. But but no, you know, I sat there patiently after Jalen them. The Eagles had won that game. I sat there patiently and watched uh, uh, Cincinnati, and I thought all hopes was lost once uh, the fumble. I thought once uh, Joe Burrows got the ball in his hand, everything was over with. I really did. You're talking I about said, a moment of anxiety that sticks in every oh Chiefs God. fan's heart right there. Yeah. You know, after that game, man, when that, when that ball went through the uprights, I can tell you this, Coach Hills went through my body and, I got a little emotion. There wasn't no tears running, but I was had a, a eyes full of water. Let me say that because, you know, it was great for me to see and, and just to be here knowing what had transpired with me 35 years ago and to see this now, I'm not only one quarterback, but we got two in the Super Bowl. That's a great feeling. I have to imagine you were just flooded with calls and messages on Sunday night. <laughs> was there anybody that you just had to pick up the phone and talk to about this? Yeah, James Harris. James Harris played quarterback uh, with the Rams, and we both went to Grambling. So we we just like brothers. But right after that game, I, I called, and I told Shaq, I said, Shaq, we can't lose. <laughs> I told we can't lose. We got two in the Super Bowl, you know. And he was happy like I was. And, you know, we talked for a little bit. And like you say, the phone started ringing after that. It probably seems incredible to some now, but when you played – some people, a lot of people, frankly, openly questioned whether a black quarterback could succeed in the NFL. For our listeners who may not know or remember the obstacles that you faced as a QB, and when you broke into the league in 1978, can you explain what that looked like? Yeah, you know, as a black quarterback, it was never about my ability to play the position. That, that wasn't a question. The question has always been leadership. Could you lead a team? Uh, you know, quarterback. It's not about whether or not a black guy could lead a team. It's whether or not they get the opportunity to do it. I think that's the bottom line. You know, the opportunity don't mean a guy getting behind the center for a game. Opportunity means the coaches, the owner, and everybody give a guy time to play. And that's what it takes. Do you think the thinking around the league, around professional football, has changed as we think about present day? No. We, we still got I mean, all you got to do is look at the, the scope of the black coaches. It, it had not changed. You know, I think the player player situation had changed. When you think about these black quarterbacks, you know, they only playing because they're the best that the team has. You got to play what you got. <laughs> it's about the best guy. But I don't think they always pick the best coaches. And that's all about leadership. You know, you you leading a whole uh, line of men. And and they got to give more coaches an opportunity to coach in the National Football League to say that we we made a lot of progress. Now we made some, but we still got a long ways to go. If you were to speak to either Mahomes or Hurts before this big historic game, 
What advice would you give them? It's the only advice you can give either one of them is play your game. I mean, what they've done all year got them to where they are today. And it's not too much me or anybody else could really tell them. Listen to the coach and the game plan. That's the bottom line. Doug Williams, now senior advisor to the president of the Washington Commanders. He led the franchise to a Super Bowl title in 1988. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the story of a nursing home bought by private investors. It then started to fall apart, literally, as the owners were making enormous profits. That story is coming up in just about 10 minutes. It's 5.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington. Traditional as well as accelerated cognitive behavioral therapy for kids and adults with OCD and anxiety. CBTeam.org. On the list of things that Apple and Google and Meta have in common, Ireland and its tax laws figure prominently. The European Union, though, dissents. After all, if you want to be a member of the European Union, you can't just not apply the laws that exist in the Union. I'm Kai Rizdal, Ireland versus the EU, Big Tech edition, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Following rising tensions and a string of attacks between Israelis and Palestinians in recent weeks, Secretary of State Antony Blinken continued his visit through the West Bank today to the occupied city of Ramallah for discussions with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. After Blinken reaffirmed the U.S. commitment to the region for enduring peace and prosperity. The United States is committed to working toward our enduring goal of ensuring that Palestinians and Israelis enjoy equal measures of freedom, security, opportunity, justice, and dignity. And it's President Biden's firm conviction that the only way to achieve that goal is through preserving and then realizing the vision of two states for two peoples. Meanwhile, Blinken heads to China on February 5th for a meeting with Chinese officials. The Biden administration has proposed new rules that would strengthen access to contraception at no cost under the Affordable Care Act. Paris Maria Godoy has more. The Affordable Care Act requires private insurance plans to cover contraception at no cost to patients. However, current regulations that were passed under the Trump administration allow employers to object on moral and religious grounds. If the proposed changes are implemented, employers will still be able to cite religious exemptions, but women covered under their insurance plans would be able to get birth control directly from a willing provider at no cost. Before they can go into effect, the proposed rules must be published in the Federal Register. That'll happen later this week. After that, the public will have 60 days to comment. It will take several months before the rule is finalized. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 368 points. The Nasdaq up 190. The S&P 500 up 58. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and a group of congressional Democrats are pushing to affirm the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. The measure guarantees gender equality under U.S. law. 
Massachusetts was one of the first states to ratify the ERA back in 1972. 38 others also signed on. But they didn't act within the time frame Congress set back then, so the ERA was never added to the U.S. Constitution. Presley and others today filed a bill to finally enact the amendment. So our fight for equality, it is unfinished. But I'm proud to take up the mantle and declare there is no time limit on equality and the Equal Rights Amendment must be added to the United States Constitution. Presley says women face daily sexism, pregnancy discrimination, and pay inequities. Massachusetts, Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell has reached a settlement with a Framingham company to resolve allegations that it engaged in price discrimination. Hometown Auto Framingham operates dealerships in Wellesley and Danvers. The state claimed the company charged black and Hispanic customers higher prices for add-on features such as paint protection or remote starters for the cars they bought or leased. Under the terms of the settlement, Hometown will repay affected customers to the tune of $200,000. The company has also agreed to change its business practices. Betting on sports is now legal in Massachusetts, as long as it's done at one of the state's three casinos. The first bets were placed at 10 o'clock this morning. Massachusetts Speaker of the House Ron Mariano was at Encore Boston Harbor in Everett for the kickoff. He says in-person sports betting will benefit the region's economy. It's going to be a beacon for, for Boston as a travel destination. Red Sox legend Johnny Damon was also at Encore this morning. I worry about the casinos because Boston fans are very educated on everything. So uh, hopefully a lot of people can make some money and hopefully uh, people uh, bet the right way. State regulators are expected to approve online wagering on sports by March. Massachusetts Republicans vote this evening on who should lead the state party for the next two years. GOP Chair Jim Lyons is running for re-election, but he's facing questions from some in the party about whether he violated campaign finance law and why the party has been less successful in getting Republican candidates elected. The party meets tonight in Marlboro. In the forecast tonight, cold overnight, down around 20 degrees. Tomorrow, about freezing with sunshine and clouds both. Thursday and Friday, sunny skies both days, about 38 on Thursday, only 27 on Friday. 34 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The city of Memphis is preparing to bury Tyree Nichols, the black man who died after a brutal beating at the hands of five Memphis police officers. His funeral on Wednesday morning is expected to draw thousands of mourners and also prominent African-American leaders. NPR's Adrian Florido is in Memphis and joins us now. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so tell us about the preparations underway for the funeral tomorrow. Well, Nichols's funeral is going to be held at the Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church. Uh, it's a massive sanctuary in Midtown Memphis. Uh, and the church's pastor, the Reverend J. Lawrence Turner, says he's expecting more than 2,500 people. Uh, this despite the fact that Memphis is currently experiencing an ice storm that has sent temperatures 
plummeting and made the roads pretty dangerous. Uh, Nichols's eulogy is going to be delivered by the Reverend Al Sharpton, uh, and other prominent black leaders will also be here, uh, including Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, who called uh, Tyree Nichols's parents earlier today and, and told them that she would be attending. You know, listening to you describe that, it does strike me that in the last few years, we have seen several of these high-profile funerals for black people killed by police. You know, I'm thinking back to George Floyd's funeral in 2020, which was this highly political event. Are we expecting something similar tomorrow, you think? Yeah, also, these really have become kind of a a national ritual, these funerals. Uh, They're not just burials. They're, they're also sort of becoming stages for African-American leaders and the families of the victims to draw attention to, to the persistent scourge of police brutality, uh, especially directed at African-Americans. Uh, the Reverend Al Sharpton, as you might remember, also delivered the eulogy for George Floyd's funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that eulogy was a, a touching tribute to uh, George Floyd's life, but it also was an impassioned plea for, for justice, for equality, and for police reform. Uh, And in the years since, there's been very little progress on police reform, at least on the federal level. Uh, The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has gone nowhere. And in the days since Nichols' death, uh, black leaders and also President Biden have called on Congress to pass it. Uh, So Nichols' funeral tomorrow will probably be an opportunity for black leaders to remind Americans that the problem of police brutality has not gone away, uh, that police reform is still needed both uh, federally and, and locally. Right. Well, I mean, Tyree Nichols' death and the video of his brutal beating, I mean, they've already forced some change in Memphis. Like, the five police officers involved in his beating were charged with murder. But the fallout, it's still ongoing. Where do things stand at the moment? Well, in the last couple of days, we saw the police chief uh, disband the unit of which all five of those officers were members. It was called the Scorpion Unit, and it was the specialized unit that the Memphis PD used to patrol uh, high crime areas. Uh, Officials here in Memphis are continuing to investigate the actions of other officers, but also emergency medical personnel uh, uh, who responded uh, during and after Tyree Nichols' beating. Uh, We've learned that two more police officers were suspended. Uh, Two sheriff's officers have been relieved of duty pending investigation. Uh, Two EMTs who responded to the scene have been fired for failing to adequately respond to Nichols' injuries, and so has a lieutenant with the fire department. Uh, And Memphis police and prosecutors say that in the coming days, uh, more criminal charges could come. Hmm. That is NPR's Adrian Florido in Memphis. Thank you so much, Adrian. Thanks, Elsa. The owners of some nursing homes in New York have been making millions of dollars in profits, even while they've gotten generous payments and loans from the federal government during the pandemic. That is according to an investigation by Jordan Rao with Kaiser Health News. The New York State Attorney General's office is also suing several homes for fraud. Jordan joins us now with more. And Jordan, you've been reporting on this lawsuit that alleges financial practices that seem disconcerting to say the very least at some of these nursing homes. Tell us, what has the State Attorney General accuse them of doing? The attorney general has accused three separate nursing homes of moving a lot of the money that was in the nursing homes out and paying it to other companies, uh, companies that they hired to provide management or staffing or in some cases to rent the building from. And the lawsuits charge that they overpaid large amounts and that these other companies were in fact owned by the same people and controlled by the same people that owned the nursing home. So this raises a couple questions here. The first is, how common are these types of arrangements? And separately, were they prompted by the pandemic? 
These have been going on long before the pandemic. It's uh, common in the industry that uh, owners have multiple companies that basically take care of all the things with nursing homes, and they move a lot of money into it. So there's nothing new about that. But what's new about it is that what we were able to do is, because of the attention on the pandemic, take a look at what was going on in one state with unusually detailed records, and that was New York State. And we found that these other companies that the owners also owned uh, were making high profits in the year 2020, average profits of 27%. So what happens then to all that money? Does it end up with the nursing homeowners and their investors? The short answer is we don't know because they're not required to report it. We do know from the lawsuits, the allegations there, the uh, attorney general is able to uh, subpoena bank records. And some of these owners made huge sums. I mean, she accuses one owner of taking $16 million in profits over the course of about four years. One set of owners of taking $16 million of profits over four years and others of taking similarly large amounts. So it's very possible that this is happening not just in other homes in New York State, but around the country because the majority of for-profit nursing homes have these type of financial arrangements, but we just don't know because they don't have to report the details. The Biden administration is currently in the middle of deciding whether to require nursing homes to have more aides and nurses on staff. Tell us, how do these financial factors figure into that decision? The Biden administration is thinking about creating some really strong new requirements uh, that nursing homes have to have a lot more nurses and a lot more aides on staff at all times. And the key question here is how much can nursing homes afford? Because if they can't afford to hire a lot more people, then the government's going to have to pay a lot more through Medicare or Medicaid. And this is key because basically the the, uh, Biden administration can't tell how much money these nursing homes are actually making because the money is being moved out. So they're, you know, operating with, frankly, less information than, you know, I have when I go to buy a used car Mm. about what type of profits are being made by the person that I'm setting the rate for. And it's uh, a tough answer that they cannot get it. And last question, what is the next step legally for some of these nursing homeowners in the attorney general's lawsuit? The attorney general wants them to repay the money that they got from the nursing homes. And the lawsuits are also asking that the court bar some of these owners from operating nursing homes. And the attorney general's office says that some of the patient problems in terms of care that are identified in the lawsuit are still going on. And those were some pretty harrowing incidences of uh, residents being left in their own filth for hours on end because no one came to get them, uh, falling and smashing their heads and getting these huge lacerations, not being able to get up and go to the bathroom. And the uh, AG's office says that they believe that some of these conditions are continuing. The homes themselves are fighting these lawsuits very vigorously. They've hired a lot of lawyers, and they say that the money that they took out of the homes has no bearing on the quality of the care, and the problems that they had were just due to the pandemic in particular and have been rectified. That is Jordan Rao with our partner, Kaiser Health News. Jordan, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Flying can make some people nervous. That's especially the case at Beirut, Lebanon's International Airport. The runway is beside a polluted beach and landfill on one side and densely populated areas on the other. NPR's Ruth Sherlock had a look. 
What are the dangers for planes flying out of Beirut airport? They are seagulls and live bullets. I'm standing on a beach which runs parallel to the runway in Beirut airport and the sea is brown with raw sewage and behind me is an enormous landfill site. This attracts seagulls. On the other side of the airport runway are residential suburbs of Beirut and in these areas it's traditional to fire your gun in celebration or in anger. So when people pass their exams or when a political leader gives a speech, people fire into the air. Bullets, bullets, three bullets, they come in the fuselage. And one, one bullet can make a hole? In the... Can make a hole, of course, because the bullet that goes up has to come down. That's Newton's law. Everything that goes up has to come down. That's Mohammed Aziz. He's a retired pilot and advises Lebanon's national carrier, Middle East Airlines, on security. Aziz says this New Year's Eve alone, the company had to ground two of its planes because they were pierced by falling bullets. So we have it as a stray, as a part of our checklist now. Whenever we check aircraft, we check for bullets when an aircraft is parked. Beirut Rafiq Hariri International Airport remains busy, with people coming for tourism, business and family visits daily. So far, no one is believed to have been injured, but Lebanese media recently reported that a stray bullet hit a passenger's iPhone as he walked out of the terminal. And Aziz was on a plane that aborted its takeoff when it collided with birds. We went back to the gate. I could see the aircraft, uh, all the windshields on both sides uh, side were full of blood from the birds. There are seagulls attracted to the nearby landfill and coastal sewer. And there are also flocks of domesticated pigeons owned by people living in buildings that overlook the runway. In 2017, in an act of desperation, Aziz says Middle East Airlines invited some 125 hunters to come and shoot the seagulls. They killed thousands of birds. Either you shoot the bird or they let the bird uh, harm an aircraft. So harming an aircraft with 150 or 250 people on board is not really a choice. Officials with the airport did not provide a comment on the situation, and government officials now say most of the landfill is covered. But some is still exposed, and there are still sewers nearby. Paula Yakubian, an independent member of parliament, has campaigned for the landfill to be removed. And she was on a plane that was hit by gunfire after landing. Then it was really scary. The bullet was 20 centimetres above of my head. Yakubian says politicians have repeatedly appealed to citizens not to fire their weapons, but this is rarely enforced. Lebanon is in an economic crisis that the World Bank has blamed on mismanagement and corruption. Again, you go back to this inefficient mafia that is ruling the country, and all crises that we live are somehow the result of this mafia. Yakubian says... The story of the gulls, the garbage and the guns at Beirut Airport is symptomatic of the failure of Lebanon as a state. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Beirut. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Anais Mitchell spent more than a decade developing her hit musical Hades Town, but she went back to her roots in rural Vermont with a solo album inspired by her memories of childhood. We'll hear from her next on WBUR. And tonight on Marketplace, there are millions of recipes online you can get for free, but cookbooks just keep selling. We'll hear why on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. January should end tonight with the kind of weather we expect from January. Cloudy and cold, about 20 degrees overnight tonight. Then next month, meaning tomorrow, sunshine mixing it up with clouds. Temperatures should lift to about freezing. For Thursday, up around 38 degrees with plenty of sunshine. The end of the week is looking just as bright and a little bit chillier with daytime highs by Friday, only in the 20s. 34 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by WorkBar. Flexible co-working and private offices for individuals and teams in Greater Boston. Quincy and Framingham coming soon. Workbar.com slash WBUR. And Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at catchlightpainting.com. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. You might know Anais Mitchell from her musical that's set in hell. It's called Hades Town. It won her eight Tony Awards and a Grammy. And now she's got another Grammy nomination for a song called Bright Star from her self-titled album. Around this time last year, I spoke with Anais Mitchell about making that very album. We left New York in a rush. I was nine months pregnant when the pandemic really started to heat up in New York City and I just didn't want to give birth in the city. And so we packed all of our things in a van, we drove to Vermont and had the baby one week later. They moved to the sheep farm where Mitchell had grown up and into the house where her grandparents used to live. I had a lot of childhood memories because I grew up in and out of that house. I picture like, the sound of my grandma's sewing machine and my grandpa's like watching football on TV and there's something cooking in the kitchen. And I felt like I had access to that again in a weird way. Mitchell began to spin those memories into songs. And now she's out with a new self-titled album, her first collection of solo music since 2012. Bright star. I'm home now from my roaming. I'm alone now in the gloaming with the ships out. When I first moved into my grandma's house, I found this box um, and it had my old journals from high school and college. Um, oh and I read them and I actually burned some of them because they were so, <laughs> so embarrassing. No way! Yeah. You set fire to your own words? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. This, the world is fine without them. But I did run into a lot of objects, like all of these correspondences I had with my grandma, where my grandma would write me letters. And I and I wrote this one song on the record called Revenant that really feels like it's about my grandma. It's also about myself as a child and a kind of return to that space. Read your letters all again. 
Coffee rings and a ballpoint pen Tear stains every now and then I remember what they meant Revenant can I ask, what did you learn when you were reading your grandmother's old letters? Did you learn anything new about her? The thing about my grandma, she was an incredible correspondent. She would write letters every morning. And I was just one of many people that she wrote letters to. And she was just someone who was very tuned into the details. If she'd been to a party, she would describe the hors d'oeuvres, you know, and then she'd say so-and-so was wearing, you know, a persimmon-colored blouse with a, you know. She was very... She was quite the writerly spirit. She was, and she wasn't a writer by profession. It was, you know, she was really a homemaker and a sort of community member, but she brought so much creativity to that, that role. Come and let me hold you. Come and get my shoulder wet in one. Come and show me what it is you want. Did writing this album, I mean, because there is such a sense of place infused throughout this album, did writing it in your grandparents' old house, in the place where you grew up, did it help you understand your own childhood in a different way? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot on this record kind of about growing up. There's a song on the record called Back Roads. I recall small town stars, the radio tower and the reservoir. Which I started writing as really like a just pure nostalgia piece about growing up in Vermont. It's about young love, it's about my first boyfriend, and it's about going to a party in the woods, like drinking some beers, you know, and a tailgate in the woods and the police uh-huh. come and you just throw your cans of beer into the woods and run. And um, I was in the middle of writing that song and it was, a, you know, purely this nostalgia song when George Floyd was killed and the Black Lives Matter protests began to really surge in the summer of 2020 and it just suddenly became so clear that I was writing a song of white privilege. It was just so clear, you know, that like that my experience of growing up with this freedom and this sense that um, I was a rebel of some kind or that I was living on some kind of edge when in fact I was completely encircled by caring adults, you know, that um, yeah. that were there to keep me safe, you know. Who would forgive you and cut you some slack if you did get in trouble. Exactly. Maybe even with the law. Yeah. And just the, the, the reality that that's not, that's not the experience of, of a black kid growing up in this country. So there were a lot of ways in which that wasn't the only song where I felt like coming back to my hometown, I see how small it is, you know? It's when you're growing up in that town, it's the whole world. And you think, this is how life is, this is how the country is, this is how the world is. And then having the perspective on it, I take less for granted about the way that I was raised. Well, I love how so much of this album reminisces about your earlier self. And I had read that writing it was sort of like an escape pod. That's that's your words. From the years and years you had spent working on the musical Hades Town. Can can you tell me what were you escaping from when you went to Vermont back in March 2020, back to where you were from? For me, I was living for many years like I was in the woods, you know, as if I was just putting one foot in front of the other working on this musical, um, which I loved and was obsessed with. But it was just my entire creative life. My, my like every yeah. waking day was just spent trying to <laughs> trying to perfect this thing so we could get it to Broadway. And it was almost like once it got to Broadway, I didn't know what to do with myself until I found myself in Vermont with this 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 whole new milieu and just um 
out of context entirely. So I found it was really like a, a reconnection with what it is to write a song where you just are following the song wherever it wants to go. Well, it, it has been almost two years since the pandemic began and since you left New York City. I'm curious, does the city feel or seem different to you now when you're looking at it from afar? You know, there's one song on this album called Brooklyn Bridge, and um, uh-huh. it's it's the first song on the record. And I um, I started writing that song when I was living in Brooklyn, and I, I somehow, like, I couldn't let myself write it. It felt like it was an over romanticization of Brooklyn or of New York and I was living there and, and no one's ever done that over romanticized New York City <laughs> exactly there was something about leaving the city and putting it behind me that I felt I was able to give give into kind of give over to these just mythic feelings about New York which um, which it is you know you I was living yes. in it so it was my home but it also has always been it's a city of dreams you know city of ambitions and um I, I love like the way in which one person, you know, one artist, any person riding in the backseat of a cab across those bridges can have that like epic feeling <laughs> about their life. And that at this at that same moment, there's like hundreds of other people having that experience, you know? Yeah. There's a line totally. in the song that's like, I wanna be someone, I wanna be one in a million. And it's like in New York City, there's a million people who who feel that way. <laughs> You're never alone, and yet sometimes so alone. That was singer and songwriter Aeneas Mitchell. Her self-titled album came out a year ago. Her song Bright Star is up for a Grammy Award for Best American Root Song on Sunday. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool, customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Cold tonight, down around 20 degrees. Tomorrow, highs about freezing with sunshine and clouds both. Thursday and Friday, sunny skies about 38 on Thursday, only about 27 degrees on Friday. Wake up with WBUR tomorrow and host Rupa Shinoy. The Federal Reserve is expected to continue its crackdown on inflation by raising interest rates. Also, state Republicans are choosing a leader in closed elections tonight. It's 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. It's now legal in Massachusetts to bet on sports. The first wagers were made this morning. Kind of being 
you know, the first to make a bet in part of history, right? Because it's history um, with sports betting now in Massachusetts. It's a great feeling. It's pretty cool. There are high hopes for the state's finances and concerns about problem gambling. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, New York Republican Congressman George Santos is stepping down from his committee assignments. That is, the outcry continues over his falsified biography. Gas stove manufacturers have long known that their burners create pollution in homes. Now they might be feeling pressure to start offering people another option. The design of cooking equipment has not changed a lot over time, but it's starting to change now, and it's just going to take time for those to become available. Also, prison mentors. A handful of states are testing a prison reform model that stresses rehabilitation over punishment. Older inmates keep younger ones on track. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is making stops in cities along the Northeast Corridor this week to highlight his bipartisan infrastructure law. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Biden is in New York City today to announce plans for a long-delayed rail project under the Hudson River. The much-needed upgrades will help ease a bottleneck for commuters using New Jersey Transit and Amtrak trains. President Biden says the bipartisan infrastructure law will cover half of the estimated $16 billion price tag. This is just the beginning, just the beginning of finally constructing a 21st century rail system that's long, long overdue in this country. This project is critical to transforming the Northeast Corridor. The latest blueprint calls for the construction of a new rail tunnel beneath the Hudson River and a major upgrade to an existing tunnel. The White House says the Hudson River Tunnel Project is projected to result in about 72,000 new jobs. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Republican Congressman George Santos is telling his GOP colleagues he's temporarily stepping down from his two House committees. That follows ethical allegations against him. Santos facing continued calls for his resignation as investigations focus on his personal and campaign finances, as well as lies about his resume and family background. Santos was assigned to the House Committee on Small Business and the House Science, Space and Technology Committees. He's agreed for now to step down, saying he wants to focus on serving his constituents. A great unwinding is set to begin May 11th, now that the Biden administration has decided to end the COVID public health emergency. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN in Nashville reports one of the biggest effects will be for anyone on Medicaid. Ever since the emergency began, Medicaid programs have been barred from dropping coverage, even if people no longer had low enough income to qualify. Stan Dorn of the Latino civil rights group Unidos U.S. says those whose circumstances have changed should be transitioned to other options options like the federal marketplace. But people who the state has reason to know are eligible should not be terminated because of missing paperwork. That's that's just wrong. According to the government's own data, as many as 15 million people may lose Medicaid as part of the process, and patient advocates say many will still qualify but just be lost in the shuffle. Those with private insurance have less to worry about, but there are changes, including higher costs for COVID tests. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. The maker of ChatGPT OpenAI says it's coming out with a new tool that should help detect whether a document was written by a person or by the artificial intelligence tool. It comes at a time when teachers and higher ed officials are increasingly concerned about the potential for abuse. The new AI text classifier launched by the company follows extensive discussion at schools and colleges where officials note it is not foolproof. Strong end of the month on Wall Street. The Dow is up 368 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. A teacher strike in Woburn is in its noisy second day. 
Educators are off the job in defiance of a court order. That means the teachers' union could face fines. WBR's Max Larkin reports on the contract dispute. Negotiations continue, but slowly, in Woburn, according to Union President Barbara Locke. Speaking at a rally Tuesday, Locke addressed the union's goals, a living wage for paraprofessionals, more physical education, and a raise for teachers that keeps up with inflation. It's just amazing to me that they're just not saying, okay, with all the money this this, uh, city has, why wouldn't you do that? In a statement, city officials asked the union to comply with the court order blocking the strike and added that they are, quote, committed to bargaining in good faith. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. In-person sports betting is now legal in Massachusetts. The first-ever bets were placed at the state's three casinos at 10 this morning. Wagers are cash only to prevent problems in gaming and uh, credit card debt. State gaming regulators are expected to let online wagering begin in March. Lawmakers estimate sports betting could generate $60 million in annual tax revenue for the state. That's on top of licensing fees, which have to be renewed every five years. More than 30 states have legalized sports betting since 2018, when the Supreme Court threw out a federal law that banned the practice in most states. The MBTA will make its data on train slowdowns public by springtime. Those are areas where trains and trolleys have to slow down, often because of traffic infrastructure issues. An agency spokesperson says the data will be transparent and easy to understand. The transportation advocacy group Transit Matters has been tracking the slow zones. Its data show a red line round trip takes 21 minutes longer than if the trains were operating at full speed. Federal regulators are ordering lobstermen to remove their pots and traps from a large part of federal waters off the coast of Massachusetts by tomorrow. The rule is in effect until May 1st. It's meant to protect endangered right whales that are vulnerable to entanglement in fishing gear and vessel strikes. The area in question extends from the waters off the tip of Cape Ann south to an area off the coast of Marshfield. And tonight and tomorrow night, there will be intermittent lane closures in both directions of Storrow Drive and Soldiers Field Road in Boston. The disruptions will be in place from 8 p.m. until 5 a.m. the next morning. The Department of Conservation and Recreation says the closures are needed so crews can repair and replace fences and guardrails along the roads. In the forecast, a cold breeze blowing tonight. Temperatures tumble to 20. Lots of clouds around tonight. Then for tomorrow, sunshine mixed in with clouds should just about make it to freezing. Then mostly sunny on Thursday, up a few degrees to 38. It's now 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. There's been a lot of chatter lately about gas stoves, namely that when you turn on your gas stove, it emits pollution that can affect the health of people in your home. Yeah, okay, I got it. But manufacturers know how to make burners cleaner and much more efficient. In fact, they've known how for a long time. Problem is, stoves with those burners have never been offered for sale, but that may be about to change. Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk joins us now. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so let me get this straight. Manufacturers have known how to do this for a long time. What? So 
For how long? And, and why did they originally invest in developing cleaner burners? It, it started about 40 years ago. Uh, federal wow. regulators were considering a ban on kerosene space heaters because they put out a lot of air pollution into a room. And gas cooking stove makers and gas utilities saw that and worried the government might come for them next. So they developed this thing called an infrared burner. Ooh. It uses 40% less gas, emits 40% less nitrogen dioxide, and NO2 is the pollutant that public health experts worry about most when it comes to cooking with gas. Uh, research shows that there's a connection between having a gas stove and childhood asthma, as well as other health problems. And if you reduce the pollutants from the burners, that likely would also reduce the risk of illness. Okay, so tell me more. How are these efficient or more efficient burners different exactly? Well, instead of that familiar blue flame, these infrared gas burners look more like a traditional electric burner. They glow red, and you can hardly even see that there's a flame there. Wow. I showed this design to Brady Seals at the environmental group RMI, and she said the fact that manufacturers and utilities developed a partial solution for the pollution issue and didn't sell the burners just underscores the need for regulation. You know, the time is long overdue for mandatory performance standards for gas stoves so that we can make sure that they're meeting a health protective levels of pollutants inside our homes. Appliance manufacturers say they're working on voluntary standards to limit nitrogen dioxide from gas stoves. Wait, so why don't manufacturers make and sell these cleaner burners in gas stoves already? Like, what, what's the problem? One reason is is that iconic blue flame. It goes away on infrared burners, and that's a big part of their marketing. It is? Uh, wow. <laughs> yes. A lot of utilities feature that blue flame in their logo. Wow. And also, these burners, they're more expensive, and they can be a little harder to clean. But most importantly, consumers just haven't demanded a cleaner burner. Hmm. But that may be changing now that uh, gas stoves are in the news again. I talked with uh, Frank Johnson. He's at GTI Energy. That's a gas industry research organization. And he says they're working on new burner improvements now. The design of cooking equipment has not changed a lot over time, but it's starting to change now. And it's just going to take time for those to become available. And for gas utilities, that stove is key. It doesn't consume a lot of gas, but it's considered kind of this gateway appliance. People like cooking on them, and if there's already a gas stove in a house, it's more likely that consumers will burn gas in their furnace, their water heater, or clothes dryer. Exactly. Okay, well, the reason we're talking more about this now is because of all the regulation issues that have been discussed earlier this month. In fact, somebody on the Consumer Product Safety Commission was talking about banning gas stoves. Is that a real possibility, you think? You know, it seems unlikely to me, but the commission is starting on March 1st to look at the available science about health and safety risks. Uh, Commissioner Richard Trumka, he's the one you mentioned about banning gas stoves. He said yeah. that in December. And I'll just summarize what he said, that uh, that uh, these processes usually can take a long time, but this one could happen by this time next year. That is NPR's Jeff Brady. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. More than half a million people go to prison every year in America, and Colorado is one of the latest states trying a new approach to support inmates through an experimental unit focused less on punishment and more on keeping people from returning to incarceration. Older inmates mentor younger ones. Colorado Public Radio's Dan Boyce reports. Jennifer Benson and her husband Gary are touring the Arkansas Valley Correctional Facility in southeastern Colorado, visiting from their home in Idaho. 
I can tell you, um, having a child in prison is devastating and heartbreaking. And honestly, I never thought we would go from proud Army parents to prison parents. About five years ago, Benson's son Bradley was locked up here, 20 years old and facing a 29-year sentence for assault. Going from the Army to this, I thought I had found my purpose, right? And so now I'm in prison and, like, it seemed hopeless, right? Benson says his first few years in prison, he felt like he could only focus on survival, always watching his back. Terry Gay knows all about that. Like Bradley Benson, Gay went to prison in his early 20s. He's been there for 18 years now and says it's mostly been about punishment. That's the only way they can benefit from it is to keep us down, right? Keep us confined, you know, to, to, to slam us down and, and give us a minimal amount of resources. But then something changed. Colorado's Department of Corrections is trying out a new approach to prison that's more focused on rehabilitation than punishment. A year ago, they opened a new unit with different, more relaxed rules based on systems in Germany and Norway. It's APOD, and this is Changemaker Village. Gay shows me around. It looks more like a college dorm than a prison cell block. All the aesthetics is completely different than any other pod in this whole facility. A big screen TV hangs on a bright, multicolored wall. Couches, a kitchen with a microwave, absolutely packed bookcases, and way less tension. I can sleep with my door open. I would never do that in prison. I can really do that here. Sometimes I forget to close my door at night. This is the Restoring Promises unit. Younger inmates like Bradley Benson are paired with older mentors like Gay. I never thought I'd be a part of something like this. Like this right here is amazing. Gay is one of about a dozen mentors accepted into this experiment. He's hopeful it'll give him a shot at maybe getting his freedom back one day. But even if that doesn't happen, working with the younger guys has changed him. I want to add value to these young men so they can be of value to their loved ones. Someone had to teach me that. And I feel like now I'm ready for that. At an event celebrating the first year of this Restoring Promises unit, Ryan Shanahan with the Vera Institute of Justice says efforts like these focus on reforming young inmates. Vera's a New York-based nonprofit that started helping states set up special correctional units like this one in 2017. The reason why we target young adults, 18 to 25-year-olds, is because they're one of the hardest age groups to work with when they're inside. They commit more violence than other age groups. Shanahan says young men are also more likely to end up back in prison, so there's a potentially huge return on investment for every one of these young guys who can be straightened out. Also, Frankly, the staff morale on Restoring Promise housing units is significantly higher. So in a place like Colorado that's having staffing shortages, might this be part of the solution? 25-year-old Bradley Benson is likely facing at least 10 more years before he's eligible for parole. He's getting certified as a personal trainer and wants to do that on the outside. But until then... I hope to take on one of those mentor roles and really being able to help other young men find their purpose. His parents say watching him improve and set goals is bringing some joy to their lives as well because they say they're serving his entire sentence with him. For NPR News, I'm Dan Boyce at the Arkansas Valley Correctional Facility in Colorado. 
Embattled New York Republican Congressman George Santos is stepping down from his committee assignments. The move comes as outcry continues over his fabricated personal and professional biography. Santos dodged reporters today when asked to comment. Questions will be answered to the appropriate people. The media is not judge and jury of anything. NPR congressional reporter Barbara Sprunt has more. Questions around George Santos have been swirling since he arrived on Capitol Hill. The New York freshman has been under scrutiny over claims he deceived voters with false details about his biography, including his religion, family history, education, and professional resume. A New York Times investigation has also called into question many of his claims around the source of his campaign funds. Santos has admitted to various fabrications, but has denied other wrongdoing. Why are you confident you'll be clear? I'll be clear because I have nothing to hide. On Tuesday, he told his colleagues he was making a change. Now, we just uh, got out of conference, and George has voluntarily removed himself uh, from committees as he goes through this process. That's Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who chairs the GOP conference. Santos was placed on the Science, Space, and Technology Committee and the Small Business Committee. Roger Williams, who chairs the latter committee, said he was surprised by the move but supports the decision, saying the attention surrounding Santos was distracting. For a while, the, the question. I was getting asked by all of you is, is where, where, where are you going to put him that came to do this? It became about him. It's not about him. It's about our committee. The Texas Republican said Santos told his colleagues in a closed-door conference meeting that his recusal is temporary. I think there's a threshold that he feels like that he's not the issue anymore. And when he hits that, it sounds like he wants to get back on committees and get going. Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was also at the meeting, said Santos was not pressured into stepping down from his committees by leadership. He just felt like um, that there was so much drama, really, over the situation. Several Republican members of the House, as well as Republicans in his New York district, have called on Santos to resign. But GOP leadership, who hold a narrow four-seat majority in the House, have said that decision should ultimately be left up to voters. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, The Capitol. Putting yourself out there is often hard and scary. Music artist Omar Apollo knows the feeling well. I didn't want to sing in the house. I was so embarrassed. Even my dad told me I was terrible. But after a few weeks of practice, he changed his dad's mind, and now he's nominated for a Grammy. Omar Apollo's journey from his garage to global stardom on the next All Things Considered. Listen on the radio or ask your smart speaker to play your NPR member station. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening. Coming up in person, cash-only sports betting becomes legal in Massachusetts. The high hopes and serious concerns are coming up next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org. Stocks were on the upswing for this final trading day of the month. The Dow rose more than 1 percent, 369 points, to close at 34,086. S&P gained almost 1.5 percent to finish the day at 4,077. The Nasdaq picked up nearly 1 and 3 quarters percent. It finished the day at 11,585. Boston-based New Balance assigned uh, baseball star Shohei Otani to a long-term endorsement deal. Otani plays for the Los Angeles Angels and is 
the only player ever to be selected as starting pitcher and leadoff hitter in the MLB's All-Star Game. Terms of the deal have not been disclosed, but New Balance says it will partner with him on campaigns including the release of a limited edition baseball cleat that's due out next month. Business news comes up in about 10 minutes on Marketplace. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Discover meaningful work with a master's in mental health counseling. 94% of grads hold clinical jobs or are in private practice. GRE and prerequisite courses not required. State licensure eligible, now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. The Boston Bruins and the Celtics are both off until tomorrow. Celtics guard Marcus Smart says there's no timeline set for his return to play. Smart injured his ankle earlier this month in a game in Toronto. Coach Joe Mazzula calls Smart's status day-to-day. Clouds overnight tonight, temperatures all the way down to about 20. And then for tomorrow, partly sunny skies with highs about 32. Thursday, more sunshine rising a few degrees to top out at 38. Should be colder by the end of the week. WBUR supporters include Celebrity Series. Broadway's Jessica Vosk pays tribute to Sondheim, Judy Garland, Elton John, and more. February 5th at Symphony Hall. Celebrityseries.org. This is All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Sports betting is legal in Massachusetts. Today, the state became one of more than 30 states that have legalized the practice. WBUR's Walter Wuthman was at Encore Boston Harbor Casino in Everett this morning when the very first bets were placed. 30 people lined up at Encore's new sports betting kiosks to place their bets at 10 a.m., the moment sports betting went live. Chris DiCenzo of Arlington put $100 on the Kansas City Chiefs to win the Super Bowl. Felt good. I've been waiting for this for a long time. DeCenzo said he plans to come back again. I like to just, you know, place bets, but not with, you know, not with bookies. <laughs> and this way you can you know, lose money you bring in stuff, you know. Nearby, Matilda Bonfordeschi of Revere also put $100 on the Chiefs. I did the money line. I have no idea. <laughs> she looked down at the paper slip the kiosk spit out to record her bet. I believe I make $100. State officials predict the newly legal sports betting industry will bring in between 30 and 60 million dollars in tax revenue each year. I think you're looking at a potential gold mine. That's Massachusetts House Speaker Ron Mariano. He led the bill to legalize sports betting through the legislature last summer. But he lamented the fact it took the Massachusetts Gaming Commission about six months to write regulations and begin allowing bets. I really think they could have gone a little faster, but uh, obviously they erred on the side of caution. And, and took their time and wanted to make sure there were no, no major mistakes. So uh, you can't fault them for that. For now, bettors must play sports bets at one of the state's three casinos. The Gaming Commission hopes to roll out mobile betting on apps and websites in March. Experts who study the gambling industry predict many more people will participate once they can bet on games from their phones. Some worry that will lead to more problematic gambling. UMass Amherst researcher Rachel Volberg says people should be careful when gambling for the first time and only bet what they're willing to lose. There are some groups that we think 
will be vulnerable because of their lack of experience with gambling or because they're being targeted very specifically by the sports betting operators in an effort to grow the market. But at least on Tuesday, Massachusetts' first official sports bettors were reveling in the moment. Stephen Leslie of Woburn bet on the Philadelphia Eagles to win the Super Bowl. Kind of being you know, the first to make a bet in part of history, right, because it's history um, with sports betting now in Massachusetts. It's a great feeling. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Leslie said he felt good about the bet for multiple reasons. One, you could stay local, and two, you're giving the money back, you know, good or bad, to, uh, to Massachusetts. And you want to, if you're giving out money, give it to the state in which you live. Many of these enthusiastic new sports bettors will lose money on Super Bowl Sunday. But being one of the first to do it, that's a feeling money can't buy. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. There are resources available for people struggling with compulsive gambling through Massachusetts Problem Gaming Helpline. You can visit the website gamblinghelplinema.org or call this number 1-800-327-5050. You'll be able to speak with a trained specialist to get support. A group of black citizens in Oregon says their family homes were wrongfully taken from them decades ago. Now they're seeking compensation from the city of Portland and a local hospital through a federal civil lawsuit. Katie Riddle reports. It's been more than 50 years since he moved away from his neighborhood in North Portland. But Claude Bowles can still remember the smell. Fresh baked bread. The bakery uh, that was just right across the street from where my grandparents lived. He describes a kind of blissful freedom that he and his six siblings enjoyed. We'd go over there and they would just hand us hot bread out of the window of the bakery. And we'd take it to my grandmother's house. We'd slather it with butter. His grandparents' house is no longer standing. He points to where it used to be on an old map. This is their house right here. 223 North Cook Street. Today, Bull's lawyers argue the house would be worth close to a half million dollars. Where their home stood, it's a parking lot now. And, you know, and when I, I think about it, yeah, it just kind of, you know, it does something to me. That parking lot is adjacent to Legacy Emanuel Hospital. That's who acquired the house from his family. Bowles is one of more than two dozen descendants suing the hospital and the city of Portland. Both declined to comment for this story. In a statement, they said they're reviewing the case. I remember the anguish of my grandfather not understanding what was happening. What was happening to his grandfather, says Bowles, was that the hospital was intimidating him, forcing him to give up his house. The family had moved from Alabama to Oregon. His grandfather found work there in a foundry. The house was 3,000 square feet on three levels. It was his legacy. I remember him always telling me, you know, Hey, you have four sisters that, you know, they may or may not meet a man that will treat them nicely. And if that's the case, they can always come here because I've made a way for them. And this is what I want you to do. You always, you hang on to this house. And what do you remember about once your grandparents had to move? What was the new place like? Wow, that was very different. Um, We ended up, I mean, spreading out uh, into a more Caucasian kind of neighborhood where you weren't really accepted. 
a very functioning close-knit neighborhood that's supporting its people is an extremely precious and all too rare thing. Mindy Fololove studies urban policy and health at the New School in New York. She's researched something called the Federal Urban Renewal Program from 1949 to 1973. There were thousands of these kinds of projects. Many city governments argued these neighborhoods were blighted. In the end, Fololove says, roughly a million people were pushed out of their homes, two-thirds people of color. And so to have that snatched away from you without your consent, this is a, a very brutal, very brutal thing. And many people are suffering to one degree or another decades later. Urban renewal policies were undoubtedly racist, says Fola Love, but they were legal. This case in Portland accuses the city and the hospital of violating the law even then. The suit claims they conspired, bullied, and coerced Black people into selling their homes without fair compensation. Then, the plaintiffs claim, the hospital itself would create blight by neglecting the empty houses. This is my grandmother. Juanita Biggs is another plaintiff. She's holding a picture. And we call her Big Mama. And I love you, Big Mama. Biggs stands with the help of her walker by a freeway on-ramp. She points to a passerby. The house would would have been where where he's walking. That's, that's where her house was. About 50 feet, maybe. Yeah, and, and this area here was the house where another family stayed. Biggs is almost 82 now. She was a young woman when her family was forced to move. You know, you see your grandparents, and you're there with them playing checkers and everything and talking about good old times and stuff. And then everybody's happy. And then all of a sudden, everybody's sad. Juanita Biggs says coming to this neighborhood makes her sad for her family, for Big Mama, and everything taken from them. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Temperatures are headed downward. 28 degrees right now should fall all the way to about 20 overnight tonight. Plenty of clouds around, a little bit breezy. Tomorrow, partly sunny. The first day of February should only make it to freezing tops. Thursday, more sunshine rising to just about 38 degrees. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.